The well, Hayes vision, Maguire, it's free. Like, we have this aerial view of everything that's happening. I know, so but it's Hayes not like, it's not, like he, he knows he's free. not passing the ball to Rio Ferdinand. I, right? I, I he knows he's in front of into this. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now. Very welcome along. It's Thursday morning. It's half past seven. This is OTBAM. It's Jerry Gilroy, Shane Hannon, and Colin Bowie with you this morning. Gentlemen, how are you? All right, lads. How are things? What's going on? Uh, mildly hungover, Shane. Ah, only mildly. I was very. You're young, you see. Exactly. Yeah. It was awful. Don't feel it sometimes, but um, yeah, it was. A, it was a brilliant night. It was at the uh, roadshow last night. Uh-huh. Just the Champions League roadshow with the lads. Nathan yeah. and Joe did a, a stellar job as as per usual. Um, Graham Sunes, Wes Brown, John O'Shea. Graham Sunes was a, li- a late, 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 late replacement for Paul Merson. Um, it was a big time, to, good time to get Sunes because he's just he's finishing up his guy, right? Yeah, he uh, and he made the hint and uh, joked that he he's not used to being a substitute, which there was an awkward but funny silence. And um, yeah, he uh, he was in brilliant form. He said the decision to leave Sky was not his own; that he would have liked to have stayed on. Um, but, uh, you know, at the way it was going for him, he was getting one-year deals and he expected and hoped maybe he'd get another one-year deal. Uh, and sadly didn't. Sky decided, as he said, to move in a different direction and uh, he was quite quite okay with that decision. He said he's had a couple of offers already. I was going to say, Graham Sunis issues, come and get me plea to be in sports slash CBS slash, is it yeah, CBS or NBC? Keys and Grey, is it? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, he kind of laughed off the Keys and Grey suggestion from, I think it was Nathan. Um and he said he has, he said one of the two offers one's in media it appears and the other is within football oh uh, which, wow which is, was an interesting uh, wow shout now Nathan was like oh you're mad going back into to management and he said well not necessarily management director so of football style could be something president yeah so he seemed interested in the offers like if you're if you're Rangers for example and you're bringing back Graham Sunis to oversee some kind of uh, reputational enhancement some kind of shield for the board. I can see why mm. the club would look at that. From his perspective, though, like, is it a role where he's going to have power to influence things? Yeah, you'd wonder. And he's a man, like, as, as was pointed out last night, he's, he turns 70 next weekend. Wow, he does looks not. He looks unbelievable. For a guy who, like, has had his heart issues as well when he was yeah. a very young lad at Liverpool, when yeah. he was player-manager. Mm. He, uh, he goes swimming four mornings a week with a couple of mates at half six every morning. Has a gym that he uses in his gaff. Um, but clearly stays in, in a remarkable nick. Um, has six kids as well, the youngest of which is 23, so I guess that keeps him young as well. What? I know. That, that does not keep you young, Shane. <laughs> that does not keep you young. Would That's it, the opposite. I would have thought, you know, if you're 23-year-old, it keeps you in touch with Yeah, it doesn't keep kids. you young. It's no. like constantly stressed. I suppose. You'd have given him 47. <laughs> Easy. God. God. Plenty, plenty of time for you, Colin. Yeah, exactly. He was in... Uh, Math on it, wow. He, at one point, he was given out about the modern game in football. They have, and this, they have this... You know, you, you don't have to. Just, it's just for everybody out there watching. Just, you know, go on. Mm-hmm. After a while. You don't have to have the kid, you know. True, yeah, yeah. You can, you can we have a chat now? You can prevent it from happening if you want to. Advice for me and Colin here. There are, there are numerous methods that maybe you don't get taught in, in Irish schools. Maybe. maybe we'll talk about this later. <laughs> we'll talk about it now if so you want. Post-production meeting, maybe. 
Um, he, he started giving out about the modern pre-production, game. pre-production, pre-production. Sorry, yeah, which which should be the, the case. He, um, he he stood up at one point and started uh, saying, well, "What's all this crap about you know when coaches opening up binders before a player comes on? Like surely the work is done at that point." And then he started doing all this crack with managers, you know, using the hand gestures in the sideline, and he clearly wasn't a fan of that. He even stood up at one point to gesture Tony how Adams. much he doesn't like it. Yeah, Tony Adams essentially. Um, those, the the other big the moment from the night I think was when John O'Shea was asked about Evan Ferguson. Oh yeah, and I was thinking, oh, John's on the coaching staff now. The, the senior setup, Stephen Kenny gave him a call. Um, he's going to play this down, and he said, basically, mark my words, Evan Ferguson will threaten Robbie Keane's goal-scoring record. Wow! And okay. everyone's like, "Whoa!" <laughs> whoa, whoa. <laughs> like, Expect that in your social media feed very <laughs> soon. I'd say when we say it, we're absolute lunatics getting carried <laughs> oh, yeah. away with ourselves. Yeah. Choo-choo, hype train! But uh, oh, he, know, he leaned into it then. He yeah. knows. He knows. Jeez, that's about amazing. Yeah. Directly involved with him in the Irish setup as well. To he's, say that he said he's not currently as focused on goals as Robbie was, perhaps at that age. But his, the rest of his game is unbelievable. But the goals will come. And he said, hey. "Once the goals, once the tap is open, I suppose, then there's no turning it off." I don't care if he if he uh, threatens Robbie Keane's goal record. If he becomes a player who also creates, you know, mm-hmm. like if he's a, if he is a, a a more assist creator as well, because that's in a way it's kind of harder to to mark. Yeah, um, it's more influential in games over the long run, you know. Yeah, and John is like he spoke very highly of Brighton and, and the work they deserve. He actually he was asked at one stage, I think, by one of the lads, who is the best manager in world football at the moment. And the, the name he first came to was Roberto De Zerbi. Wow. Uh, as someone he said at Stoke, he watched him up close for the when they played Brighton, I think, in the FA Cup this season. And he said he's so impressed by De Zerbi and just the in-game management. Um, wow, well, he doesn't know our league, does he? Well, what? <laughs> this is it. Who, who, who said that? Was it Merce? It was Merce, wasn't Could it? Merce, yeah, right. possibly. Um, well, that would have been an interesting little uh, yeah, yeah, moment. Uh, no. <laughs> Not <laughs> having it. We well, knows our league now, Paul, doesn't he? He certainly does. But, but yeah, O'Shea spoke glowingly of um, of the work. He, John would have played with Barry Ferguson, Evan's dad, at uh, at the Toulon Cup years ago in the under-21s. Wow, okay. So I uh, would know the, the family quite well. But um, Circles Jesus. within circles here. Yeah, essentially. That was really good. Like Even they spoke about that Cristiano Ronaldo sporting Lisbon match when mm. O'Shea was supposedly... Uh, absolutely destroyed by a young he Ronaldo. He was no uh, supposedly about it. He did. Have you seen it? Is there, is there footage of it? There oh, is yeah. footage. Oh, of it. Right. I even Euro Sports at the time. I remember that. Was yeah. it? Yeah, well, I, I didn't. I remember assumed that it was game like, being live. I assumed it was one of those things that was reported on ethereal and, and not actually in existence. It was on Eurosport. Okay. Yeah, they were flying home from Lisbon that night. Yeah, and the players said to they went up to Ferguson in the plane, like the senior players, uh, boss, you got to sign this case, and he was like. Don't worry, lads. I managed. Right. Turned out that they went straight to him in the dressing room afterwards, being yeah. like, "You're coming home with us." He's like, "No, no, I need to stay for a while." Mm. A week later, he was back. Right. Old but O'Shea said he was ho- he was not ho- uh, he was jet lagged for that match because they'd come back from the oh, states. Oh yeah, okay. So, uh, that was, his, right. that was yeah. his excuse. Got them in early. Yeah. Um, really good. Wes Brown added a lot to it as well. He does a lot of work with MUTV and kind of can speak very very well. Wes, um, they analysed the the cross for the Ronaldo header in the 08 Champions League final. And oh yeah, being around Ferguson. As as not a hands-on coach, but the impact that that you know Ferguson would have would have had with all those coaches over the years, Mullenstein and Phelan and McLaren. Um, Wes Brown was in with us the morning after the Roy Keane Gary Neville roadshow, and he was the one who told us that it had gone straight to the WhatsApp group from the Man United players. They were like, "Have you seen what Keane said?" <laughs> I was like, "Oh, that's interesting." Right. Yeah, yeah. Wes said he had seen the MUTV tape of because uh, oh, obviously yeah? John O'Shea was asked about the the MUTV tape and Roy Keane la- laying into among other players John O'Shea quite heavily. Oh, was O'Shea part O'Shea of it? O'Shea was one of the players. Oh, I didn't realize that. Really heavily laid into, and oh. um, 
John was kind of he wasn't asked about it too often this this question, but yeah. he said, look, he, it's something that Roy would have said to him many times. It wasn't like the, the the tape was mad shocking. And Wes Brown said he has seen the tape, of course, and he was in the room when it was played to the players, and he didn't think it was that bad. Right, like the players it's just think, an excuse to get rid of him because they thought he was he was yeah. washed up. Yeah, hundred percent. They decided that they didn't want to uh, pay him the most money anymore, and that the power that he had was. <clears throat> out of whack with what the contribution that they thought he was getting. He was making. injured at the time, of course, as well. Mm-hmm. They, had no, they had no use for him. Well, if Roy was in his trouble. prime when this tape comes out, oh, they were there. like, look at Roy's time. You guys all better follow him. <laughs> yeah, it was John O'Shea, Kieran Richardson, Rio Ferdinand, wasn't it? Mm. Karen Fletcher. All those out. names were the ones called out. There's yeah. uh, saying here in the comments, Sunes uh, was saying the very kind stuff about Deserby. Uh, well, O'Shea brought his name up first, but then Sunes backed him up, yeah, and and was was complimentary. That's right. so yeah. two of them said it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both both complimentary for Roberto De Zerbi and the work they're doing with younger players. But there was a lot of um, a lot of really interesting things out of it. Yeah. Um, but the Evan Ferguson line, I think, had had everyone excited. And then Sunes Sunes said he hadn't seen him live, but he's watched a lot of Evan Ferguson, and he is he's going to be a big star. He said. So I have a review in here from a regular uh, of the show. Right. Sunes the standout. Some heavy questions on him about mortality, which threw him a little, I oh. think. Definitely made him up, made him open up after that. Crowd loved him. <laughs> well, it was quite funny because the, the, the first portion was Rory just Graham Lammer. by himself. And then you had uh, John O'Shea and Wes Brown by themselves and then the three lads. But the, the portion of Graham by himself saw another side to him. Uh, yeah, at one point, Joe asked him, um, you know, because his 70th birthday is approaching, he asked him, do you ever think about your mortality? <laughs> there was a bit of an awkward ooze and ahs from the crowd, but Joe then reiterated he, he didn't mean it in an offensive way. Graham did not take it in an offensive way. Um, but it led to an interesting a road talking about his health and and that, that incident, as he say, um, caught him when he had a few, few blocked arteries, I think, at 38, and opted for the surgery. And he said, looking back, he regrets going for the surgery. He only went for it because he's in a stressful job. Uh, a couple of his uncles had died quite young from, from heart issues, so... He figured he didn't want to be one of those. Um, but it led to a really fascinating other side to Graham Souness that I hadn't seen. Mm. What was the alternative to the surgery? Kind of take your chances, because um, obviously the recovery from the surgery was quite heavy on him as well. All right. Um, but I probably hindsight 2020, but he probably made the right decision regardless of... Yeah, of although maybe, maybe there's drugs now, maybe you stick him on the statins and he's grand, I don't know. Yeah, possibly. If, um, if there's any cardiologist watching this morning, you might... Uh, <laughs> Just had a pure nosiness. Yeah, drop us a line. Yeah, exactly. Um, How would you have treated Graham Sooners 30 years ago? <laughs> yeah. But no, it was a fascinating night. Uh, and just to see the dynamic between even, even John and, and Wes talking about the... Actually, really fascinating there, Sunderland days, talking about Paolo Di Canio as were, a manager. Were they mates? Like, they were mates, yeah. And yeah. it comes across that they're mates, not Big just time. like... They weren't just teammates, they were mates. Yeah, spent most of their careers together, because even yeah. when they left United, they were at Sunderland and... Um, for, for longer than I thought, actually, I was looking up there each of their respective times at Sunderland. They were there for quite a while, bro. Yeah, O'Shea. significant Especially time. Especially the, uh, the the Canio manager management. Like I did not realise how attention to detail Paolo De Canio was. He said at one point they so they were stopped from they couldn't use mouthwash. Uh, there were other things in their diet that they could not use under Paolo De Canio. And he also and John O'Shea said this with a you know I didn't like this portion of De Canio's management. He said there was a there was a guy who worked at the Stadium of Light and he had worked there for decades like this was an older gentleman who was part of the fabric of Stadium of Light and Sunderland Football Club and the players used to shake hands with him or whatever or give him a hug on the way into every match and Decanio said no more I don't want you shaking his hand it's it's you know it's putting you off before a match he wanted the the walk to the to the dressing room to be completely head down so uh John O'Shea was, the global pandemic coming yeah possibly but he queried O'Shea I think and Brown were, were two of the leaders in that Sunderland team he probably queried that 
sort of decision making. Yeah, it sounds nonsensical. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Where, where's Paolo now as the manager? Yeah. How did that work out for him? Well, they said if Paolo was a calmer character, he would have been a brilliant manager. I mean, you could say the same about Roy Keane, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know if you could. I don't know. I actually think Roy Keane is a brilliant TV pundit, uh, particularly in light of the stuff that, you know, you see what Brawley was saying at the weekend. Mm. And you remember the times watching the Ireland games and going, this is a shit game. And then on comes Dunphy and Giles and Brady. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, oh, oh there's something else happening here that I'm unaware of. Yeah. Um, so... Maybe Paolo Di Canio could be a world-class TV pundit. Jeez, he's 10 years out of management, Di Canio. That was 10 years ago. That's Is he doing TV? Things. don't know. I haven't heard from him in a long time. Someone saw him in a documentary a couple of years ago. And I was like, oh, yeah, Paolo. Paolo, Paolo, Paolo. Uh, right. If you want to get in touch with us, 087-9180-180 is the WhatsApp number. You can leave a comment on youtube.com forward slash off the ball. Make sure you hit subscribe on YouTube. And if you're listening to our podcast, by the way, and I'll uh, rate on Apple, would uh, you can leave a comment there as well. We do read them all eventually. Harry Pryor's coming up at 8 o'clock to talk uh, Liverpool and the WSL. Uh, Mark Brenny and Finian Hanley are going to preview the Connacht football final for us. One JD, please. He's back at 8.40. Our uh, quarterfinal preview, it is Ulster versus Connacht. Uh, Cameron's going to join us for that. Graham Hunter's going to join us at 10 past 9. Lots and lots of Barcelona and Messi and uh, Real Madrid and Spain news. The, if you haven't seen this, the, the headline this morning is about Leo Messi and how much money he's going to make in Saudi Arabia. Where's the money? Where's I the think number? it's 320 million. Messi's a year, 320 million sterling a year <laughs> is the front headline on the Telegraph. So the trip to Saudi Arabia was not just a uh, little jaunt to uh, help them advertise their tourism industry as it has been defended. It was like, oh, he, he made his plans. There was no training. And then they rearranged training and he couldn't change his travel plans. He couldn't get his private jet to take off a few hours earlier. To, he couldn't? Okay. That was the, the Paris Saint-Germain route. Of course, Paris Saint-Germain, owned by Qatar? Mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia and Qatar, not the best of mates. Yeah, that's what I thought. That's, that's, that's the way I read into it. Just oh, okay. Yeah. And so what's going to happen is he's going to go for $400 million for one year, £320 million. Pounds, and he'll sign for whatever club they tell him to sign for. Mm. Not quite sure yet which one. Al Hilal seems to be the team mentioned, isn't it? Is it? But I think uh, so. Ronaldo joined Al Nasir, and their traditional rivals are Al Hilal, and it looks like they would place him with them. Mm. But Ronaldo will be gone. Yeah. Maybe Ronaldo looks at this and goes, "Oh, you're bringing Messi, and how much is he getting? Oh, maybe I'll stay now, but you have to give me the same." Mm. So they're they're going to pick the club for him. They're going to force him to play for a certain club. This is kind of like uh, Frank Sinatra in Vegas, isn't it? When he was like, he had to play there like night after night. Didn't even want to. But he was forced by the powers that be. Yeah. The mob? Yeah. Well, I he mean, didn't want to do it. Uh, he wasn't happy. He was he miserable. Not, did he not make his own bed? Regrets? I've had a few. Oh. Then again, too few to mention. That, they could have been some of them. And this could be the Messi situation. Do you think Leo Messi will regret earning 320 million a year? I think uh, Messi would regret mm. losing control of his own destiny. He's going to go back to Barcelona, isn't he? Two years? I don't think so. I think no. this is... Uh, it's a principle though, isn't it? Could be two years or 20. Uh, the other thing is... I see the control of my life to other people. Why would you... I'll get that back. Yeah, you get the money. They bought your control and they paid you well for it. Sure. Well, it's life, I suppose, isn't it? What, um... Would you... Why did Barcelona want him back at this stage of his career? Swan song. Uh, are you basing that because they don't need him because they're performing okay no no it's more a like it, there's a lot of emotion involved in it but they're getting somebody who is not as good as he was 
And granted, okay, so you'll have the messy museum and you'll sell a lot of shirts and all that stuff is, you know, the brand of the uh, world's biggest brands will want to be associated with him. Fair enough. The shirt thing is, is less important these days than it used to be. But I'd, I'm just not sure if you're Barcelona, you've already moved on from him and you have a bunch of kids. You're going to sell some of those kids to raise the money. Now, maybe they're not that good, but they're certainly good enough to be important players for Barcelona for the next 10 years, 7 years, 5 years, which isn't the case with Messi. You're going to get maximum two seasons out of him. Mm. And are you going to win a Champions League with Messi in your side? I'm just not sure. Like, uh, uh, the greatest player of all time and your association with him is forever there. But it's also, it's going to be forever there. And if he just goes off now, you don't have to pay him ridiculous amounts of money, which obviously he'll want. I think if he goes back, then his legacy will be, oh, remember that fling you had, that affair you had with PSG? Yeah. But you came back to us in the end because you realised you loved us. But like the end of Network. It wouldn't be like the Ronaldo return to United, would it? It couldn't go that far south, well, surely. Like all of this, I think the Ronaldo thing is different in that uh, he he cheated on Manchester United mm. with Real Madrid and had all his best years at Real Madrid. Like, oh, they had a, a, they they agreed to that separation, Fergie and Ronaldo. It's like, I think we should see other people. Yeah, and, uh, he came back. It's not you, it's me, but it's definitely. Yeah, but you. They, they were better as friends, as it turned out. But like, Messi and Barcelona are lovers. And they will be reunited. They just had a big falling out two years ago. This is getting very graphic. Back. Very good. But also, um, the, it's a good point about Messi. Like, would he disturb the the rhythm and the momentum of Barcelona? He's one of a handful of players that will actively and visibly change the behaviour of his teammates around them because everyone's so aware that Messi's on the pitch. Yeah. So you change what you're about to do. You second guess like what you're going to do with the ball because Messi's there. So he'll obviously drop deeper. He'll probably play as part of a midfield three. But he also showcased that at the World Cup. He's still brilliant. He can be when he's motivated. Can yeah. you motivate him for a whole season? It's very difficult. It's really very difficult. And it's going to get less and less and less easy to do that. And also the World Cup was, you know, I mean, the one thing that he really needed to do. He's already won literally everything that's possible to win with Barcelona. So, I don't know. We, we will talk to Graham Hunter about this a little bit later on. If you've any thoughts on it, we'd love to hear from you. We should talk about uh, some of the other big stories from yesterday. You were about to go. I'm going to go Big Sam here. Oh yeah, this is actually a really good point, right? Because we have in the running order that Erling Haaland has broken his Premier League goal-scoring record Man. and we're 17 minutes into the show and we haven't talked about it. But for good reason, because I think people are a bit apathetic towards the whole thing and towards Manchester City's dominance, yeah. unless you're a Man City supporter. Like, it's really, like, it was quite feeling. Like? Yeah, it, it was I think quite anybody else, any other club, like Mo Salah has 29 goals this season. <laughs> I think if Salah had scored 35 Premier League, we'd probably be starting with Salah. But over. there's something to do with Haaland as this kind of freak of nature machine the soullessness of Man City I personally enjoy watching them I think their football is sensational but I understand the naysayers who are like ah whatever like 3-0 against West Ham nil all after 54 minutes that's about as exciting as it got it's just like Erling Haaland is programmed to score this many goals he's like a robot he, you just press a button and he scores that many goals you just insert the two digits and you, you tell the computer what, how many goals uh, you want him to score what <laughs> this is what he's done but it is it's, it is phenomenal cardiology uh, proctology the, the whatever you want the shield. this morning mm-hmm. his first competitive game for Man City Community <laughs> Shield missed the sitter blazed it over blazed it over right, like, right there open goal yeah. and the first game of the season away to West Ham the corresponding fixture <sighs> scored a penalty I don't think anyone envisioned 51 goals later uh, oh, by the way he's 12 off Dixie Dean's all time record from 1927-28 so he has 9 games if they make the Champions League final to break the all time goal scoring record ever uh, alright uh, Allardyce all right, went exactly <laughs> and then everyone's like oh, ok yeah anyway on to the other news well uh, <laughs> Allardyce went full Stephen Ireland says Latte Larry which is which is about the best uh, 
tying up of the two big stories in terms of uh, the Eagles have landed this week. Mm. And it's true. I haven't even met Robbie Keane. Like, I, I, that's as left field a shot mm. and shout as I've, I remember. Like, I did not have Robbie Keane in my Sam Aradici bingo for he's going to be the guy in the touchline. Phil Brown used to do that role for uh, Big Sam. Mm. Did Kevin Nolan do it at some point or am I mixing that up? Uh, I think it, uh, he played for West Ham. Wasn't he as captain at West Ham? He's I don't doing, know if he was he's doing an hour from Moisey. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's a big, big, it's a big opportunity for Robbie Keane to suddenly get back into football. He hashtag knows the club, do you know? Well, does he? He wasn't there that long. Well, he was there. There for a year and a half. A year and a half long enough to, to get ah, to know the club, on. isn't it? You know, like he knows the area, he knows the town, he knows the the, tr- the <laughs> knows the area, it's been 20 years. <laughs> Leeds has a change. So it's all changed. Years. Yeah, he went on loan initially from Inter. I remember that loan spell was great and then they made the transfer permanent 0102, and he was gone then at the end of that. Well, that's the... Brief. I mean, you could definitely have a 10-part Netflix series on those three and a half, four years at Ridsdale Leeds. years, incredible. Um, yeah, like Ridsdale, slightly ahead of his time in that he massively borrowed on the back of the fact that the, the team was going to earn loads of money to get into the Champions League and then the team couldn't get into the Champions League you could say this is basically what the Glazers have done is make a lot of money off the back of borrowings but anyway uh, I think uh, it's time for Peter Ridsdale's reappreciation. Yeah, I don't remember the Leeds fans at the time complaining at the height of it when they had this incredible squad and they were going deep into the Champions League yeah well the squad initially had been built on the young players and a few astute signings remember George Graham came in he got he left I can't even remember was there controversy around him leaving uh, David O'Leary stepped up and wasn't supposed to be getting the job and then he got the job because he took them on a great run and then they started splashing out ridiculous money like ridiculous money but there was a story about the amount of money that they'd spent on exotic fish and it was thousands and as the club was careering into oblivion it turned out two decades of oblivion uh, the, the fish was kind of the symbol of the waste the other one was um one of the players came in, Seth. Seth Johnson. Was it Seth Johnson who yeah, came in? Yeah, from uh, Derby. And was like, um, yeah. the story about how, how much money he was getting paid was, he, he kind of paused, shocked, and they jumped in and doubled it because of, of the pause. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, it ended up that the story was that he got three times more than he had expected to. And yeah. I was like, okay. I'll take this. He talks about that subsequently. He was like, it's the, the hardest I've ever had to bite my tongue, not to laugh, or to get too excited because of that pause when they doubled it. Yeah, but that was the time, like, they were just high on life. Kian Rowe was commenting on the YouTube, lads, that was genius from Big Sam. Takes all the pressure off the players and all the attention on him. Jose-esque. That's sad. If anyone hasn't heard these comments. That is absolutely not why he was doing that. Like, <laughs> he just thinks he's great. I might be 68. This is Sam yesterday for anyone who hasn't heard it. I might be 68 and look old and antiquated, but there's nobody ahead of me in football terms. Not Pep, not Klopp, not Arteta. It's all there with me. They do what they do, and I do what I do. In terms of knowledge, I'm not saying I'm better than them, but I'm certainly as good as they are. That's genius from Big Sam Allardyce. And he was taking sips of water in between the sentences too to add to the power play. That he's very relaxed. A little pause. And you're on my time. Is that you what know? you're doing now? Just a little friend. Just to me. Oh, Bobby Dwyer's in the comments. I'd say he is ahead of him this morning. He's awake. Uh, you're awake, Bobby. Uh, yeah. Be a good night. He, he did have a good night. He was... Getting selfies with Nathan Murphy, his hero, ah, last night. So, good night for Bobby. Nathan, just by the way, Nathan loves it when you fanboy him. That's his favourite thing in the world. So, if you're out there and you spot Nathan, and if he happens to be munching on an, an illicit croissant or cookie in uh, Super Value or Tesco or wherever it is he shops, 
He likes nothing more than somebody getting a selfie, particularly with bits of crumbs on his face. Oh, yeah. I was standing at the bar and Nathan was trying to kind of sneak off back into the stage room after taking his countless selfies. And I shouted, Murphy, across the bar. And he was probably thinking, oh, happy days, this is another fan. But it turns out it was just his colleague Shane waving over at him. So I, Did yourself and Bobby get a selfie? Uh, Bob did get a selfie with me as well, yeah. yeah. Probably to send to, to yourself. I think, I think he wanted to send it to yourself. He was disappointed that he didn't get to, to meet his, his other hero, Colin Buhick, of course. Oh, you're his hero? No, you. All oh, right. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, other yeah. hero. One hundred percent. Yeah, I'm certainly not his hero. Um, <laughs> but it was it was a good night. It was a good night's crack. Yeah. Um, Seamus Coleman. Yeah, Seamus Coleman. This is, good. This is uh, Seamus Coleman. Obviously, yesterday a uh, report comes out that um, an Instagram account, a picture of Seamus on the stretcher, fist up, going, and uh, I'm not no no ACL damage. Good news, back soon. And then um, you like search Seamus Coleman Instagram, and like nothing comes up. A bunch of Seamus Coleman fan accounts come up, and then uh, you look at the Everton, and it's like, uh, so Robbie Keane had wished him best at Shamey twenty three, I think, is the handle. Then you go to it, and it's like four hundred followers, and it's a private account. Mm-hmm. Like, is this real? Is this definitely real? But then Everton were the ones who shared it, so you have to assume that they're following their actual captain on his actual Instagram account. It has the bang of. Um, his missus saying, listen, you better get on Instagram because everybody else is on. He's like, yeah, okay, grand, but then doesn't do it. Just as like... Private for his... Yeah, he has like 14,000 requests and uh, doesn't know how to answer them. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is. It's a very small following, but... Um, and the picture's great that he or whoever chose was him cleaning up the crowd from the stretcher. Come on, the lads. Which I thought was a great moment. But no, it's brilliant news ahead of uh, next month's huge game of Greece. Because I was thinking before the injury that like there's a couple of years of Seamus Coleman playing in a in a new system for us if we want it you know like being the leader on the field from the right of a three yeah and stepping into midfield when he needs to like he doesn't actually need to be the pacey player that he has been for his entire career for him to have a really important role within the Ireland setup particularly at a time when the team is so bloody young yeah I think the only thing is though that that is his game. He has pace and aggression and acceleration, speed. But he's also brainy. Like he- oh, definitely, yeah. But I think the other factors are probably more prominent in his game. He'll have to change. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not saying it's exactly. Yeah. It, well, for the last couple of years, it's um, it, it'd be better, I think, for us to have him on the field, organising, cajoling, complaining to referees, yeah. like having status. Yeah which we don't have that many other players who had that status. I mean, obviously, you know, you hope Ferguson does, but, like, let him be busy scoring goals as opposed to making him captain. Um, You know, hopefully Josh Cullen doesn't get replaced in the off-season. Like, if if Burnley are going to invest a load of money, which they might do, they might look at strength in the midfield, you have to hope that he plays every minute next season in the Premier League. You have to hope that John Egan plays every minute in the Premier League. But after that, how many other Premier League players are we going to have next season? Mm. He does. He's also one of those players who uh, affects his teammates deeply yeah. Coleman you see with the Everton contingent when he went off in the stretcher everybody was going over to him wishing yeah. him well and uh, just the respect all the players have for him it was on the start of the season Damari Gray um, scored a winner mm. and they did a joint post-match interview and Coleman was basically analysing Gray in the interview live and Gray was just there like listening nodding along to him being shameless to look he, he has all the talent in the world but he needs to do it more he was talking about him as if he wasn't there but <laughs> at the same time being very supportive and Damari was just nodding along and well if you think back that's what uh, Gundogan did about Haaland 
when remember Halle wasn't scoring and he was he was frustrated and not making the runs and they were like well he's got to learn what to do he's got to learn exactly where to go sorry on Hanand Gary Neville made the very good point last night that uh, imagine City passing the ball every time he made those runs because oftentimes they mm. ignore him and they certainly did for the first half of the season yeah. so he would have probably beaten Dixie Dean's record at this stage yeah. had they played him in every time he made those runs this is a really interesting moment in time for Manchester City I think because we, we, we can't forget the sanctions that are coming up right but also they're going to have an entirely new midfield next season like it looks like Gundogan is going to uh, Barcelona will Rodri still be there I'm not sure uh, they're not getting Bellingham that's the other news that's happened in the last 24 hours is that the rumours of the Manchester uh, City being thwarted by Real Madrid have definitely it seems come to fruition I'm not really sure Duke Bellingham is a Real Madrid player but anyway mm. um, I think it's a great move for him he's a He's, he's, I think it's. But a, it's a great move in terms of like you don't have uh, the microscope from the English media. Exactly, that's probably week the in, big week thing. Out. And he's the Modric replacement straight in. Modric has yet to sign a new contract. They're entirely different players. Yeah, they are. Yeah, but, but they're entirely different players. I still you can't say that he's the Modric replacement and then can go. So like, Jude Bellingham is not going to control a game. He's he's got explosive talents and attributes, and he will score a ton of goals. Yeah, but he's far more. Uh, a cross between Frank Lampard and Brian Robson whereas uh, Luka Modric is a very unique player who was able to control games and create in a way that so Bellingham will create by taking attention away from other players by making runs mm. Luka Modric does not do that no but he's, he can run a game like Modric can he can't he can run a game no, I, don't think, I, think I think he can I don't, not yet. It, it, the same way that when Casemiro left Chiumeni comes in and steps up I think Bellingham will step up and Chiumeni's not in the team no but he'll, but he'll I, I think it's Kamavinga who's in ahead of him. Yeah, but I, th- I think I think Bellingham coming into that team, he'll get a lot of chances to play. He'll get like so. But he's not going to run the game. He's, he, that's not that's not the type. Of, he actually, I, I genuinely think that he would have fit Liverpool's style of play if Liverpool are going to continue yeah. with their heavy metal football. Like, and then and then you just become another English player. Yeah, you know? I think this is a miles better move. This is probably the best move he could have chosen. If he had gone to Liverpool... What this, if he doesn't he's play only, that but much? But he's only 19. Okay, So if he'd gone to Liverpool and then Liverpool say, don't win the league next season, there's no probably won't. then there's no. like, yeah, oh, Jude, I thought you were supposed to be the saviour. Then he's only 20 and he has yeah. all this whole career ahead of him where he's like, oh, another English flap who's overhyped. This way he goes, stays abroad, from, away from the Premier League, plays Real Madrid. He'll like have about 80% of the games every season he'll be in a dominance team. He'll have yeah. loads of time in the ball. He'll be playing with two other people around him because they play three. He'll have Kamavinga, Chuamani. He'll have Tony Cross, and he'll have Madrid. Mm. Well. He's going to learn off all of these players. Why don't we get Jasmine Baba to do a piece for us about um, what type of player he is and compare and contrast him with Definitely, other yeah. midfielders, Definitely. particularly the ones he's replacing? Like you'd say, he's, he's more a, a Tony Cross replacement than a, a Luka Modric replacement. But is it whatever about replacements, he's just adding to it, and he's going to learn so much from them. He does two, three, four years at Real Madrid yeah. then goes to the Premier League he has so much time ahead I think it's a brilliant move for him I'm also a big fan of Camavinga so he is yeah, gonna, he's class, it's yeah. going to be it's suddenly there, there's a really dynamic young midfield that they have access oh, yeah. to uh, but the corollary of that is that who's, who's going to be at Man City next season in midfield like are they are they actually going to sell Calvin Phillips now I don't know but who are the three or the two well they talk about second season syndrome uh, negatively when a team gets promoted had a, has a great season struggle yeah. the next time it's the opposite under Pep oftentimes players struggle in their initial campaign Pep's very frustrated with them they're not doing what he says mm. second season much better because they finally they finally lose grip of control and like Pep tell me what to do yeah. that's what Pep does he micromanages all his players their spirit gets broken yeah so who are you saying who for what who's it going to be to, in midfield for City yeah jeez I don't know I have to think about it now I yeah. think, but as I 
write a script for you. Right, everybody, uh, give us your uh, Man City midfield next season. But the other thing is, of course, the, uh, the sanctions that are coming. So this might be the end of the Manchester City uh, period of dominance. OTBAM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition is available now. It is a minute past eight during the ad break. You're going to hear a snippet from this week's episode of the Koi Gig Podcast. Emma Byrne tells Cathy McNamee and Karen Duggan why she's disappointed that Ireland are in League B in the Nations League and explains how it could damage the squad. The Koi Gig Pod on OTB is in association with Cabri FC, official snack partner to the Republic of Ireland women's national team. After the break, Harriet Pryor talking Liverpool. OTB AM. The Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball. Right, it's three minutes past eight. You're very welcome along to OTBAM. If you've just joined us, we're turning our attention to football. I'm delighted to say Harriet Pryor is with us this morning. Harriet, good morning to you. How are you? Morning, yeah, good, thank you. How are you guys? Yeah, we were uh, making the comparison a few minutes ago between uh, Erling Haaland's goal total and Mo Salah's. Mo Salah's remarkable goal tally, which everybody will be talking about if Erling Haaland didn't exist. <laughs> it's really funny, isn't it? Because people were talking about Haaland earlier in the season, like he could have been a problem for this Man City side. And then he goes and breaks the record that he does. And, and look, you probably... It's difficult to compare, isn't it? Because Haaland for Manchester City is an out-and-out goal scorer and Salah is a bit more of a, a forward, versatile player. But yeah, really impressive from Haaland and you, and you can't deny the impact that he's had, particularly in his first season in the Premier League. It's a bit ridiculous. Uh, Notwithstanding not that, though, because uh, Mo Salah's had a difficult season, we've been told, and you know, uh, has been adjusting to new people and uh, new patterns. And it's been an incredible return in terms of goals that he scored. Yeah, absolutely. And especially now he's back on penalties and scoring them again. It doesn't, it doesn't harm either. It's funny with Salah because I think with Liverpool, there always needs to be a player that people look at and point out as not performing consistently well. And sometimes when you're Salah, you kind of make it difficult for yourself because everyone has such high expectations of you because they're so used to seeing you perform well season in, season out. I mean, he is always the one that gets Liverpool out of trouble. He's always the one that's in form when Liverpool aren't playing very well. And he has had difficult spells in the last couple of seasons. And a lot of them have followed when the team themselves have had difficult spells. And it's difficult when he's not getting supply that he needs he's not got the midfielders behind him that are putting the balls in that he needs but in the last few games in the last runner games in particular with Trent in that midfield area he's getting really good balls into him he's making really good runs he's connecting really well with the other forward players but there's been a lot of change for Mo Salah he's having to adapt to playing without Mane without Firmino for most of the most of the time anyway and that's difficult for any forward player to get used to playing with new teammates and considering all of that he, he's come through the season with a really good goal return again really impressive season and, and most people would never put any doubt into their mind that most Salah just stay at the football club for a long time to come It felt like in the last couple of weeks that the first choice front three was going to emerge as Gakpo Jada and Salah and then last night uh, Gakpo and Jota start on the bench. So how did Darwin Nunez, Luis Diaz and Mo Salah link up as a trio? Yeah, Jota probably would have started last night, but there was a niggling injury with his back. So I think Jürgen yeah, didn't want to take any risks, particularly with the way the injuries have crept in this season. Diaz coming back has been such a big bonus. He's so direct. He's so good with the ball. He's so progressive, such an attacking threat that I think as soon as Jurgen Klopp could bring him feasibly back into starting 11, he was going to do so. Nunes, it was an interesting one because he was getting a really good run of games and then he dropped out of the team again and Jota was brought in. And a lot of people questioned that, but then Jota started scoring goals and it all made sense. Nunes found it a little bit difficult last night, I think, to really just find the spaces for himself. Sometimes his touch was a little bit 
a little bit off and he was struggling to bring other players in, but then he wins the penalty. And that's the funny thing about Darwin Nunes, even in games where you don't think he's playing particularly well, he manages to bring those moments in that do make the difference. A lot of people talk about chaos when they talk about Darwin Nunes, and that's exactly what you get in moments last night. And Salah, like I just mentioned, can play pretty much with anyone else in that front three. But looking ahead to next season, when Liverpool hopefully will be firing in all competitions again, you are going to need those squad options. And the forward line is one of the areas that you've really got all the options at the moment. But if I'm looking at it objectively, I think if if we had a really big game tomorrow, I think Salah would be on the left, Gakpo would be in the middle, and one of Diaz or Jota would be on the right. And that speaks to how solid that forward line is and I don't think the manager will have any complaints You've already mentioned it Harriet but Trent Alexander-Arnold's new position just works and, and you're almost looking now thinking maybe they could have done this sooner because even in that, in that transition from defence to attack Kanate can clearly cover that, that kind of right hand side of that defence uh, quite adeptly, adeptly and, and Van Dijk does, does similar um, You almost wish from Klopp's perspective they had tried it earlier yeah, there is obviously still teething problems. And at times, even last night, especially against Tottenham, you look back to Nottingham Forest as well, there's times where both Van Dijk and Canate in particular, because he's playing on that right-hand side, have got a little bit overexposed. Sometimes Robertson doesn't know how high forward he can push. It's really impacted everyone on the pitch. But you have to say that the positives are outweighing the negatives massively. And in particular, for me, in relation to two players, and one of them is Trent himself, who has the vision from the middle of the pitch. He's able to really cross the ball from any area he wants. He's able to take a little bit more time on the ball. Literally, it's been so impressive. But not only him, I think Curtis Jones is another one who's really benefited playing in this more free role where he doesn't have to worry too much about the defensive side of his game. He's been rewarded for that six consecutive starts in a row now. And yeah, it does seem to all be clicking. Will Jürgen Klopp think, I wish I'd try this a bit earlier, considering the run of form, six wins on the bounce, that hasn't happened all season. Maybe, but it was a bit difficult with the personnel available. Canate was out for periods of time. I would not want to be playing the system every week without Canate, I'll be honest. There was a few midfielders missing. You didn't have at times Spini or Henderson firing. So it's kind of come in at the right time when players have hit a bit of form again and the players that are available match up to that. So... I don't know if it would necessarily have worked as well earlier in the season. And I'm really interested to see if this is the thing that we continue with and persist with into next season when hopefully new midfielders will be at the club as well. Yeah, as you say, new midfielders will be at the club. Like you mentioned, Curtis Jones there. Like, what, What's his, his long-term future or medium-term future even at, at Liverpool? Like once, once Jurgen Klopp brings new players in, does he have a future? As you say, he's, he's had consistent game time in, in recent matches, but how long will that last? It's a funny one with Curtis Jones because this season he's been really in and out of the squad even and some people haven't known whether it's come down to injuries. He's obviously a young player. He's still learning his way. Whether it's come down to form and him not being quite at the level he needs to be to be in the team. And then Jurgen Klopp spoke about him at length. I believe it was it was last week or the week before and said the golden ticket into this team is working really hard off the ball. And that's exactly what you get from Curtis Jones. And he accepted that he's still got a lot to learn as a player at the age he is, but that he's just performing so consistently well, particularly in this new role. And I wonder, you know, I think he was asked actually the question himself, you're going to have new midfielders coming in. How do you feel about that? He is a player that has so much confidence in his own ability that he'd thrive with that competition. And ne- looking into next season, yes, maybe he does become more of a squad player. Maybe he does have to prove himself a little bit more and he is still young and he can think okay I'm going to play and prove myself in the games I come in now but I'm not starting option every week that's okay he'll kind of accept that that's what he's been for Liverpool 
the last few years. Although I suspect now he's had a taste of playing week in, week out and fulfilling his dream of being a consistent first team player for Liverpool. He's not going to want to give that up anytime soon. So expect a lot from Curtis Jones. People are comparing him to an Alden and that kind of workman like really hard work off the ball just a bit robust but also got that attacking threat and I can see that I can see the comparison between the two but yeah it will be interesting looking ahead to next season in particular how much he's used how much he's able to impose himself on the starting 11 but also at the moment we have no idea who the competition is going to be and that's well, the big question it is it really is just to to um tease this point out one one last bit it, it's great to be hard working as Klopp says you do also need an athletic profile that allows you to be fast and is is he does he have good high-end speed is it you know I mean we don't really get access to the club's data and information they, they must be impressed with him enough to keep him in the team but do you think it's sufficiently high high level that he could stay in the team I don't think Klopp would have started him in the last six games if he didn't think so he has had other options available which you can see because he's not been playing him for the majority of the season what I think has changed the most in the last probably even 12 months for Curtis Jones is his physicality because, as I mentioned before, he is still a young player. He was kind of growing into himself, into the role. His physicality and strength now on the ball is completely different to what it was even 12 months ago. And, and he has got that speed. Maybe not one of his top strengths when you look at some of the other players in the team, like someone like Mo Salah's pace, but definitely he has got that side to his game. And when he's allowed, as I mentioned, the freedom to roam forward a bit, that's when you really get the best out of Curtis Jones. We saw more of a normal um Liverpool last night compared to the frantic nature of that Spurs game, Harriet, which is probably something that Jurgen Klopp will be quite delighted with. More control, 1-0. Now, granted, the, the penalty controversial. Marco Silva certainly thought so after the match. But even from a pressing perspective, like you saw that from the front three that you mentioned, and even like Nunez had a chance at one point where Henderson closes down and wins the ball back. That That's more of the Liverpool that we've become used to seeing. It was more of a routine win, wasn't it? With less of an exciting one, maybe. But I think a lot of Liverpool fans on a Wednesday night midweek game, rescheduled one as well, would have taken that. It, it's funny because you look back to the Tottenham game and it was so frantic. There was total cruise control after three and a half. And then I almost think they don't know what to do with the lead at that point. They're thinking, well, do I keep on attacking? Do I defend a bit more? And they get stuck somewhere in the middle. Last night, they go 1-0 up and the clear game plan for me is, OK, you just had a game a few days ago. You've got a game coming up in a few days' time. 1-0 is absolutely fine here. You don't need to go mad pushing for the second one and then going all out attack. But what you do need to do is put constant pressure on the ball so that Fulham do not a- are not able to get a foot in the game. And that's what you see last night. And I think that's why the pressing game was more intense, why all the forward players are working hard in high areas of the pitch so they don't allow Fulham to break quickly on the counter-attack, which they'd have wanted to do. Yeah, I was impressed with the pressing. It is, like you mentioned, more of what you expect from a Jurgen Klopp side and hasn't always been the case this season. So, yeah, I was, I was impressed with that side of it. Alisson was, was crucial to the result last night as, as well. Harriet, like a couple of big saves, one from Carlos Vinicius relatively late on as well. Um, I, I think that someone said it was his 12th clean sheet of the season, joint third in the, in the, uh, amongst Premier League goalkeepers. He's level with Aaron Ramsdale. So, he just keeps going and going and from, from an Irish perspective I guess we always look at Cuevin Kelleher as someone we'd love to get more game time maybe a loan move now for him is the only option or a move away generally speaking but Alisson his performances have been really really good yeah, it's a shame for Keller, isn't it? Because we've seen in flashes what an impressive goalkeeper he can be. And when we're in FA Cup and League Cup competitions, he gets his chance to shine. But Alisson is such 
an impressive talent. And you come away from games like last night and you maybe don't reflect on it enough because he keeps us in that. Two huge saves, one crucial one really close to the end of the game where you think you could have left Anfield in a state of disappointment last night and he is the reason you keep, you're kept in it. But he's been that for most of the season. I don't think we'd even be in the conversation, Stella. Maybe we're, we're a little bit out of it now, but for top four, if Alisson wasn't there, because he is always, always on the ball. And yes, he's made a couple of mistakes this season, but haven't all of Liverpool's defence. But generally, he's been the most consistent performer. For me, looking back on the season, he's probably the player of the season as well. And another really impressive performance last night. You look at Fabinho as well as another player that just performed um, and probably brings the level of players around him up when he when he plays well. He, he's one of those impact players that just clearly has a, has a massive impact on the younger players, especially in that Liverpool squad. Yeah, Fabinho is an interesting one as well because he's someone that a lot of people this season have been criticising, saying he hasn't got the legs maybe anymore at his age and also the amount he's played over the last few seasons to, to be an integral part of the Liverpool team week in, week out. But he's another one who I think with the new system playing alongside Trent in that kind of double six pivot, whatever you want to call it, has been really impressive and looked like he's got just a little bit more solidity in his game. I still think there are a few weaknesses. I think his recovery pace is a little bit shorter than what it used to be. I think his tackles in one-on-one situations aren't maybe as sure as they used to be. Those things are probably natural considering the, considering the amount of football he has played over the last few years. And you think ahead and someone like Fabinho next season, like you mentioned, he's a really good player to have around young talent. You think, could he just be someone who they learn off, maybe doesn't start games and play the entirety of 90 minute games, but comes on for 30 minute periods to shore things up. Maybe someone like Milner now will kind of fulfill the role that he's playing. I don't know how kind of open he'd be to that considering he'll want to be fighting for his place in the starting 11 every week but definitely an integral part of the squad that you look to keep around Harry a quick word about um, Liverpool and the WSL beaten last night by Chelsea no shame obviously in in losing to this Chelsea team but a a mid-table it's going to be a a mid-table season uh, establishing themselves properly in the WSL I guess at the start of the year that's probably about as much as they might have hoped for Yeah I think the women have a, a bit of a plan over the next sort of three, four, five years in the first year was really consolidating their position in the WSL, making sure that they stayed up, making sure that they weren't dragged into any late relegation battles. And not mathematically, but realistically, you know, I think they have solidified their place in the WSL for next season. They could have done with a win against Leicester and actually that turned out quite badly, a 4-0 defeat. However, I've been so, so impressed with the women this season, how they performed, particularly since January. The transfer window was really impressive for them. Gemma Bonner, you see again last night, even though we they did lose, that she is so defensively solid. She is a really impressive person to have back in, really brings that captaincy and that leadership as well. Fuka Nagano in that midfield area as well, a really good signing. So you think if they can get a few more of that really high calibre signing in in summer next year, hopefully push a little bit higher up the table the year after maybe go for those Champions League spots they need to keep working really hard because it wasn't good enough that they were in the the championship and they weren't fighting the WSL now they're back there let's stay there let's keep pushing on difficult defeat last night to Chelsea especially as it came in the last stages and not many people would have expected them to go 1-0 up but they'll have been proud of themselves for that performance and Kirby as well in goal making her debut and coming up with some really good saves. So, yeah, they can't take too much uh, too much sadness from it, but they have got a few difficult games now between now and the end of the season. Uh, and just in time, uh, several Irish players back and available for selection as well. 
Yeah, exactly. There is, isn't there? Yeah. I think Mifahi, the captain, she's uh, been out for a few games and hopefully she can make a few appearances before the end of the season because, yeah, we've missed her a lot. Just in time for the World Cup too. Great stuff. Thanks a million for joining us, Harriet. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Bye. Harriet Pryor, the Anfield Wrap there. Uh, if you want to get in touch, 087-9180-180 is the WhatsApp number or you can get us on YouTube comments or at Off the Ball AM. Uh, OTBAM live with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave of your money back. Neo Night Edition available now. Uh, Manchester United feeling a little bit uneasy about the surge in form from Liverpool? Or nah, it's too late. Too little, too late, lads. Um, Home and hose in the Champions League qualification race. No, I don't know. United like this. This game against Brighton away tonight is a, a quote unquote banana skin. Uh, I think Brighton will fancy it. Yeah, I think time. they will. I don't think it's a banana skin at all. I think. Um, <clears throat> I, I would say Brighton will fa- not just fancy their chances I'm going to check the odds there while you uh, chat amongst yourself yeah, but I'm trying to think even if United lose that match like you look at the table United, so United have 32 games played 63 points that's 4 points ahead of Liverpool with 2 less games played than them so even if they were to lose to Brighton tonight they'd still be 4 ahead of Liverpool with a game in hand it's not It's not over. Like, if Liverpool continue the form that they've been on well they've won every game yeah. exactly <laughs> well if they win if they win their remaining 4 matches then they, this will run close. United have the FA Cup final to think about, albeit that's not till the, the season ends against Manchester City. But I do think if Liverpool win those four matches, it's going to go down to the wire. Yeah, Brighton are favourites. So, yeah, I mean, they should be favourites. Yeah, uh, Brighton are odds-on. Uh, Man United are 12-5. to five. So You look at Liverpool's fixtures. So they have Brentford at home this Saturday, Leicester away. Who's this, sorry? Liverpool. So Brentford home, Leicester away, Villa at home, and Southampton away in the final game. So, like, you're going to have a relegated Southampton on the final day when United on the final day play... Uh, it's Fulham at home. So, again, it's a home match. It's not the worst. But United's, United's fixtures aren't terrible. Apart from Brighton tonight, West Ham away, which is tricky. Wolves at home, Bournemouth away, Chelsea at home, and then Fulham at home. So, United's fixtures aren't awful. You would say that they should pick up some points from, the, from those enough to probably get top four? Yeah. They've done the hard work now. To uh, to blow it from here would be one of the all-time great swoons. Uh, Tender Chicken 56 makes the key points in all of the Jude Bellingham conversations. Lads, outside football, if you had two options to live, Madrid or Manchester, where are you choosing? Mm. Slightly biased Irishman in Madrid. Well, that's fair. Um, Manchester have improved greatly. It's a lovely city. Over the la- Weather-wise, maybe not quite to yeah. Madrid standards. but yeah. um, Madrid is amazing. Yeah, but I think the point Colin made about the, the English media and the press and the hype train it's just not as big if you're playing in La Liga like week in week out you're not being analysed to, to great detail so I think from that perspective it makes sense for a 19 year old well the other thing is you are obviously there are two full time sports football newspapers every day analysing everything and he will feel a little bit claustrophobic in Madrid but maybe he'll be able to ignore that if he doesn't read those papers um, you know the, the goldfish bowl will be specific but different mm. In Madrid, um, you know they obviously turned on Bale. Bale still had an incredible career there, but the media did turn on him um, with all the golf. So maybe just don't get a golf simulator in your house, or if you do, don't tell everybody you have one. Possibly, yeah, yeah. Focus on the football. Uh, I'd like to see where he ends up. He will end up in the Premier League at some point, Bellingham. Um, maybe in three or four years. But I'd be fascinated to see which club he joins. Um, maybe Birmingham City get back the way up to the Premier League, and he goes back and helps his old hometown club. Um, they have his, reti- his jersey number retired so of course, he can't just, go back yeah well, that's it just pick up the, the old number maybe take it out of retirement for just for him can't do that no so uh, you've already made your decision yeah. uh, when you asked who the best manager in the Premier League was did they know Sam Allardyce was back at Leeds 
No, we didn't. That's um, uh, podcast led to leads uh, using our platform to advertise yours. Yeah, fair play to you. Mm-hmm. God, God loves a trier. Got a hustle, baby. Bruce Strobel Fan Club says Bellingham's not a playmaker. He wouldn't like Modric's boots. What is that lad Shane no, on? Sorry. Shane's a bit tired and emotional because he was out last night. I don't so mean look. they're similar in, in playing styles. Of course they're not positionally. But but I mean in terms of getting on the ball, dictating play and, and, and impacting players around them. Like Bellingham Bellingham does get on the ball. He he certainly has an impact on the match. You can't you can't disagree with that. <laughs> it's an impact on the match is not getting on the ball. No, but like these are different things. Look, it's okay. When you he gets out, on the ball, when grand. he gets on the ball, he inspires <laughs> players around him. Similar similar to Modric, he's yeah. not the same type of player as Luka Modric. Jason Park. I, by the way, I don't think any player is similar to Modric. What he All does right. is quite unique. It's okay, apology accepted. Yeah, he's no Jason Park for sure. Uh, we've done that one how good it is Colin that Haaland has broken his best mate Clive Allen scoring record asks Bobby Dwyer Uh, yeah Uh, typing through his bleary eyes this morning (laughs) Um, yeah okay so if you want to get in touch we'd love to hear from you 087-9180-180 is the WhatsApp number as I said and you can also get us on uh, youtube.com forward slash off the ball turn our attention to the Connacht football final it's a relatively novel pairing of Sligo and Galway this weekend and I'm delighted to say Mark Brehany and Finian Hanley are with us this morning uh, Mark we're going to start with you good morning to you how are you? Good morning Gerard how are you? How are you keeping? What's your level of excitement heading into the game this weekend? Yeah very excited obviously uh, our first final now in eight years so I think there's a great buzz around the town um, great yeah, great buzz just chatting to people about it you can see the flags beginning to slowly appear around shops Um some houses as well around uh, the town and the county. So, yeah, we're suppose we're going to to a final where we're we're going to be big underdogs. But uh, the overall feeling is this is progression. Great to be there, and let's see how it goes. I think it's it's fair to feel about that progression that uh, this isn't just a kind of random flaring up because the the various under twenty and under age teams over the last number of years have done well, and you're coming to this final off the back of an incredible winning streak and promotion so irrespective of what happens in the final this isn't an island it feels like yeah absolutely I think the the nine games in a row that we're on that that winning streak is very very important um, backed up as you said with between schools football Summerhill our under 20s there's just a great good feeling out there amongst the GA community in Saigo so um, yeah I think Sunday again is going to be an important progression especially for this group they're uh, there are a lot of mid-20 guys. They've had a tough time that one particular year didn't actually participate in the Connacht Championship due to COVID. Um, so, you know, that group, they had to come in as well at a stage where, I know when I explained myself, there was a lot of guys kind of coming late 20s, early 30s. And this particular group um, were only a lot of young young guys coming in 1920. And they've had to learn a lot in, in a quick period. So for them now and for Saigo to progress, I think these lads have to stay around the next three, four years to bring the under-20s through and some of these very prosperous uh, minors as well. In, in a way, right, and I don't know if this is going to be... Uh, I, don't, I don't mean this in any way insulting, but would it actually been better for that group to have come through the Talton Cup this year and to use that winning experience against teams of a similar standard? Because, like, look, it, you know, maybe Kildare at home is the game they're going to look at and go, yeah, we can actually beat these guys. So maybe I'm completely wrong. But if, if there was silverware at the end of this or a realistic chance of it would that have been better for the group at that age do you think I don't think so um, and it's probably going back to maybe my own, my own career because unless you play against the better teams Jer, you won't really find out what, what you're about as a player as a group so I think we need to get to, to, to a stage where we're back in Connacht finals we need to learn a lot from from this Galway game however it goes 
I think going back to 2015, we'd bet Roscommon the uh, Division Two champions at the time, and um, then you know we we won that game, and I suppose we were on a huge high. We had a lot of young guys and a mixture of ages that day as well. But now we got obviously a, a fairly hammering in, in the Connacht final against Mayo. But within a few weeks, we played Tyrone at Crow Park, and that game ended up I think it was twenty one fifteen or so. So for me, you, you learned a lot, obviously, and there was a lot of soul searching after a Mayo game in that kind of final. But we bounced back quickly. We learned a good bit. And if we got another game after Tyrone that particular year, I think we would have learned more again. So I think it's important that we're at this stage, um, especially for the development and the growth of a lot of these players. And again, going back to when I started off, I think the restructuring of the leagues back in the late 90s was a huge help for Sligo Um what I'm talking about that is where we would have played the likes of Dublin, Kerry in the leagues around that period. And that brought it lovely then into um, into, into the Connacht Championship. And, and you were just getting used to playing against, against teams that are moving the ball quicker and at a faster pace. And uh, I think that just lent itself very, very well for, for an important run in the early noughties and probably backed up then with the Connacht, Connacht final of 2007. We have Finian Hanley on the on the line this morning as well, and and Finian, similar question to you as we started off with Mark. Like, in terms of the excitement levels in Galway for this one, I know Porrick Joyce's reaction after the semi final win probably highlighted how important the kind of championship still is to Galway. And I think you're you're one off Mayo in the kind of GA role of honour. So there's motivation there ahead of the weekend. There is, yeah. I think I, I think there's a couple of. Uh factors here. We weren't expecting to be playing Roscommon in the first match, I suppose. We were getting ready in Salt Hill for a, a Galway Mayo uh, extravaganza which never never materialised when the Rossies turned over Mayo. So were Mayo, um, it turns out, Finian. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So uh, that was that was a bit uh, of a shot in the dark but, uh, you know, obviously I was I was in Hyde Park and it was it was a cagey affair. It didn't have the feel of a, a Connacht Championship. It was very, very Obviously, defensive. Both teams are quite, quite, you know, getting men behind the ball. It was cagey in the first half. Someone said it'll definitely be a bit five all or six five at half time. Turned out seven three, I think it was. And uh, even though Ross Common came at Galway, Galway were fairly professional. You could see that they're a little bit further ahead in their development. Um, with regards to the excitement, I think the excitement was coming into the Ross Common game uh, more so than it was this week, this this weekend. Um, we're not. Uh, there isn't that huge buzz for a kind of final, but I do think for Park and the lads, the significance of this weekend will be that Galway haven't won two in a row in in, in twenty years. So, uh, in Connacht, which is which is you know quite quite amazing, really. So, two thousand and two and three was the last time we did back to back in Connacht. I think I think I'm right, but uh, so that'll be that'll be significant to to get that monkey off the back and, and do back to back. The overall standings in Connacht. You know, it'll be Galway Mayo mostly uh, that, that that win these championships. So I don't even, I don't think that way is heavy. But there isn't huge excitement around here this weekend. To be honest, it's it's, it's a bit like it's a, a foregone conclusion uh, with Galway. You know, such heavy favourites and obviously Sligo, you know, progressing really well. But being in Division Four, uh, you know, there is a, there is still a gap there. Even though Sligo are starting to close it, you know, two under twenties back to back. Um, but I think Galway, with regards to their development, haven't played in the All Ireland final, the league final, are a bit bit further ahead. And you know, I think people in Galway are thinking this will be probably cagey in the first half, but comfortable in the end. The the um, because last year was so successful for Galway. Obviously, success this year is going to be going one step further. Finian, the the team seems to have evolved happily through like having players injured or away for whatever reason. New players have come in, old players have come back. It kind of feels like. Um, 
kind of Magnificent Seven style rallying of the troops for a massive surge this year. Is that the sense in, in Galway as well, that actually this has been handled very well? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think the club the club scene in Galway is quite strong at the minute. We have four um, really good football teams that could compete at a national stage with Saul Till, Mike Cullen, Finn and Mount Bellew. And a lot of those players are in the county setup. We have five from Saul Till in the county setup. So, um, and they're all getting game time. So, They've brought a bit of freshness, but Ian Burke is back. David or Peter Cook is back. Uh, huge additions to, to this panel, and uh, like I think, I think Galway are, are, are rallying to go one extra. One thing I will say though, Jer, is that last year was probably premature for Galway. We got over Armagh on penalties, you know, a, a tight affair against Derry. We didn't play a Dublin or a Kerry. Maybe it was a year ahead of where we should be, but. Look, we are where we are. We have that experience now and, and the talk in Galway is certainly about all Ireland. Um, Mark, just listen to what Finian's saying there and, and, and how heavy favourites Galway are. Is there a belief in Sligo that, that they can win this game on Sunday? Because I'm looking at the bookies and they have Galway's 12-point favourites for the match, but is there actually a belief within Sligo that, that they can turn this one? I think there's a belief that we could put in a good performance, um, Shane, and, and that's what we're looking for. I think, I think Tony McInerney has been quoted in saying that it is going to be progression over this group stage. Um, you know, this Galway game will it will it come maybe a year or two too early for us, uh, possibly. But I think what I've seen in the league has been a lot of professional approaches to games. Between I think the London London game away was was one that stood out for me. I think they won one ten to six, and that game in particular just went away to London to won it. I know obviously London are no no big power, but. At the same time, it was just going over there do the job. I mean, comprehensively bet New York, where a lot of people were doubting, you know, because Saigo were, were were close to Leitrim in the in the league at the end of the league, and um, New York got got the better of Leitrim. That that could have been a tight game in Marquardt Park, but Saigo did a, did a very professional job there as well. So um, overall, I mean, the nine games in a row, they're growing confidence. I'm just going back to one one under twenty one game back in 2017, where a lot of Saigo's panel are there at the moment. And they played in that particular day, and they played Galway in that under twenty one final. It went to extra time, and even the names that are on that were on that Galway team. A good few of them are still there. Um, you've got Kelly McDade and Peter Cook and Sean Kelly. So, I think our lads have matched up against these guys before at underage level. Just that gap between the experience of playing in in Division One, obviously in Division, you know, at the higher divisions, Division One, Division Two, would probably come against Saigo this Sunday. But at the same time. It's it's a real development stage for for this group. It's great to get to a Connacht final. We're eight years without one, and um, I think there's just a good anticipation and a good buzz around Sligo that they're they're going to go and, and fully back the team on Sunday. There are players in that Sligo forward line though that that certainly the Galway defenders will have to be wary of and conscious of. Like uh, the big score they put up at Markovich against New York, albeit as you say it's New York, but it was wet conditions and they put up you know a right bit of a score. Even Patrick O'Connor, Niall Murphy, uh, Pat Spillane as well. Like, these lads are, are wiry, wiry players, and, and Galway will have to have a plan for them. You'd imagine, Mark. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Paul's choice would be naive not to have plans. I mean, you look at the scores even the, in the National League. You've Sean Carabin in thirty-five, Murphy twenty-eight, Pat Spillane has come in. He scored two eleven for play. You've got uh, Paddy O'Connor one eleven. So, a bit like Galway, if, if Shane Walsh is off on a particular day, uh, Comer steps up, or Ian Burke now is coming into the fray as well. But so if, if Niall Murphy is having an off day, and um, Paddy O'Connor is chipping in. You know, straight away, immediately with, with a few scores, and Pat Spillane is, is there as well. And so you, you look at our forward line. You've got Niall Murphy, 
and Paddy O'Connor, both former midfielders. Paddy O'Connor played, I felt, a very good game against Tom Parsons in 2017 in midfield. Niall Murphy was a young 21-year-old um, in 2015 when we got when we, we bet Roscommon and got to that kind of final and, and, and did, did a very, very good job in, in Division 3 league for us that time. But both of them are inside in the full forward line now. And I'm just probably, probably thinking with Tony McEntee's own team of, of our man back in back in the early noughties of um, the two men inside with Stevie McDonald and, and Ronan Clark that you know so Niall and Paddy wouldn't be the six foot three six foot four typical midfield midfielders but they're they're rangy guys they're good in the air and um, you know I think if we can get good early ball in in on Galway on on Sunday we can we can cause them a little bit of trouble. Is the hope that Tony McEntee can lead the team? in a loud style run over the next couple of years now that they've like free from the COVID disruption and missing the championship and actually getting a good run at it? Yeah, I think so. I, I was involved as a sector with Tony the first year in COVID and, and it was very disruptive. Um, we played loud. It was the, the divisions were broke up into kind of groups of, of four back then and um, so we had loud Antrim and Leitrim and we bet Leitrim in our first game we felt we were going well and we had uh, Antrim, and that was, I think, it just went right down to the wire. They bet us by a point up in Corrigan Park. And then we went to Loud, and we'd, I have to say, one of the best cycle performances I had seen in years in the first half. And we were well in control of the game, and they got a goal immediately from the throw-in in the second half. And they ended up beating us by, by a few points on, on the day. But I just seen Loud progression all of a sudden. They, they got the bounce of getting out of that group that particular year. They went from then went from three to two. And you could see then um, just the confidence growing and Mickey Hart obviously instilling a, a good game plan um, amongst them. So I think if the big thing for us was getting out of Division 4 this year, everything now is, is really big bonus territory. There's no pressure on us going in on Sunday. And um, as I said, I'm hoping for um, just a good performance. And I think we have a lot of forwards there that can cause um, these these, these COVID defenders a little bit of trouble on the day. Finney, you mentioned the fact that um, last year might have been a little bit ahead of schedule. What do you see in this year to give you some confidence that actually, if they do come up against a Dublin or a Kerry, that uh, they they have enough different style of play within a match that they're actually going to be able to adapt to the challenges, the particular challenges that they will throw up? Um, I think we're... I think we're we have a bigger panel this year, Jared, to be honest. Obviously, John Maher's been a revelation. Um, you know, he's been knocking around the club scene for six or seven years. He's he's from Salt Hill. Um, but he's come in this year and really, you know, lit up. Killy McDay got injured and he's lit up the um, the, the midfield area with, with Paul Conroy. Uh, we have options there with Peter Cook. We have big men. We have Matthew Cheney. We can put a lot of guys out to midfield if we need to. Um, I think up front, uh, particularly... You'll have Ian Burke, Damien Comer, probably and Shane Walsh, given their performance the last day. But uh, you've Tom O'Callaghan, Desi Keneally, and obviously Robert Finnerty on the bench. So you've got a front, you've got another front three to come in there, Jer. So look, we we have a bit more uh, experience, obviously, in players who played in the final. But then we've got a, a really, really good supporting cast uh, at the minute uh, with guys who've got a significant game time against uh, big teams in, in, in Division One, <laughs> and I, I, I do think that. Um, our counter-attacking game this year uh, has gone another level. Uh, last year, we were a little bit trying to figure it out after coming off the back of a more attacking style when Porra came in first. So from what I've seen this year, we've gone extreme at times with you know 15 men inside our own 45, really nailing it down uh, and going on extreme counter. And it looks like they've developed that another bit further, which gives them 
probably a better defensive structure and a better foundation. They're not conceding as much. Uh, no, they're not scoring as much either. But yeah. I think um, in, in tight games, if, if you keep it to 50, 60 minutes, we do have the forwards then uh, to go and push on. I think it's a slightly underrated narrative here about um, Porrick Joyce displaying a lack of ego in bringing Keane O'Neill on board and saying, everything I said when I, when I arrived here, I might have been a little bit, you know... Uh, I might have uh, jumped the gun a little bit with that. Oh, we're going to go out and free flow and attacking football a la the 98 team. And then it's like, actually, that's not going to work for us. So I need to rethink this. And Keane O'Neill is obviously a, a big persona, a big personality. You can see on the sideline that sometimes the conversations are heated. But not everybody has the balls to do that. And actually, yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm ready to have somebody um, who will fight me on the sideline and go, actually, you know what? I think I'm right and I have the conviction of of my views um, it's rare enough that a manager has the emotional intelligence to do that definitely and obviously Porrick is a, is a god in Galway um, and he's been looked up to by everyone as a player and now as a manager uh, he's done it at every level and uh, to to look to, I, I, after the first two years they, they didn't go great uh, there was a, a hope that football may change into the tiki taka or the the extreme attacking, but look, it it hasn't, and maybe it, it won't for a while. So, you know, to allow Keane O'Neill, who's in a super experienced coach, has been there on on loads of fronts with different teams, Mayo and Tip and Kerry, uh, and got over the line to, you know, the rain. I don't know what level of 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 um, expertise he brings to the to the whole setup with regards to the finer detail, but you know, it looks like they are finely, finely tuned machine that everyone knows their role when they're without the ball, when they're with the ball, you know, how they move into attack, how they move into defence. You know, uh, Rory, Rory uh, Gallagher is doing it in, in, in Derry as well. So, you know, Porrick has really, you know, he's brought in the structures. He's, he's, he's managing it really well. There's a good buzz in Galway. There's development squads. There's, you know, they're, they're trying to raise money for the team, trying to raise money for, for underage. You know, Porrick's at the forefront of that. Um, you know, in chatting to him, he's trying to do everything to leave this in a really, really good place and get over uh, get over the line to win that 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 All Ireland Championship as well. So, uh, fair play to him. He's he, he he has it in a really good place. There's everyone singing off the same hymn sheet, and he has them all, you know, really chomping to get in and and, and play. And I, I I and I assume that Keane O'Neill is a big part of that as well. Yeah, no, definitely fair play to him. Uh, fair play to you both for joining us this morning. Enjoy the game, folks. I won't ask you for predictions. We we have a fair sense that it's going to be a Galway win but maybe it's the manner uh, of the performance really that everybody's looking forward to Mark best of luck this weekend Fillion thanks a million for joining us too thanks, thanks sir it's uh, Mark Bernie and Fillion Handley giving us their thoughts on it it is time to join John Duggan John Jared and Shane how are you all doing welcome back thank you very much mm-hmm. fit and tanned well I don't know about the tan because if I um, was to tan it would probably take a year <laughs> and probably take as long as it would take me to grow a beard but um <laughs> Yeah, I got a bit of sun down in Spain and, and Gibraltar, and it's amazing. I feel like with every passing year, um, what was sun? What's that thing? Mm. The sun? It seems to be the bigger, the dis- greater disparity for, than ever between our climate and uh, climates of other countries that actually have sun. A bit of vitamin D into you? Into your yeah, like, it felt like about 300 years since I'd seen sun, so it was great to see it. A bit of vitamin G as well, judging by your Instagram. It's hard to beat the Guinness as well. The Guinness was actually it. had before I left Sorry, of the course. shores. I would never drink Guinness yeah, outside fair. of Ireland. That would be uh, I would, disrespectful. I would, uh, actually, the pints over in, uh, responsibly, the pints over in Spain are only four euro south of Spain, so it's not bad, you know. Yeah, it's how the other half live, John. Well, that's it. And you got the sun, you got the tapas. It's definitely worth uh, recommending. You in Gibraltar as well? 
Gibraltar, yeah. 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 So like, you just walk across the border. Yeah. From the EU into a, a different jurisdiction. No passports needed? Oh, you need to, you need need to, you need to share the passport, yeah. You need to share the passport. So hope you guys are well and... Uh, all good, yeah. Um, we haven't talked about the golf and yeah. uh, the end of the great Ryder Cup careers of uh, Westwood and Poulter and Sergio Garcia that officially are over. Yes, 28 Ryder Cup appearances between them and they all resigned their European Tour memberships yesterday. Uh, there's been sanctions being levied on them for joining the Rebel Live Tour. It went to tribunal. The tribunal found in favour of the European Tour and they just said, you know what, we're going to call it a day and they all quit on mass so I think there's uh, I suppose we're going to see now the the actual because with the Masters we had Brooks Kepka, Phil Mickelson Patrick Reed all contending all in the one happy place but we're going to see now in Rome later this year that some of those familiar faces will not be there much to the chagrin I think of someone like John Ram who would wanted to play with Garcia lots of arguments pro and against should you be sole traders free traders uh, players being able to play at other tours before and then there's also the fairness aspect for the current European Tour pros who don't have access to that live pot. So look, um, it's it's it, that's it. Uh, one thing I remember what Patrick Harrington said, what was the Ryder Cup meant to symbolise? Was it Europe against the USA? Was it the plucky underdog? It was European golf? And he had said it was the European Tour versus the USA. And that's what he always felt it was. It was it was the projection of strength of the European Tour, Seve, Faldo, Usnam, Harrington later on himself, Monty. And that's why I think that the European Tour have acted the way they have, because they really see the Ryder Cup as their thing. Yeah, the only, uh, only counter-argument to that is that all the best European golfers now play on the PGA Tour. Yes. Like, so it's really the PGA Tour's best European golfers versus the best American golfers. And um, so I, I, I get it. They, they own this thing. They organize it. And if you go and you join a different organization, you know, it's like WWE and one of those other wrestling promotions that I can't name. Like, Westwood was making the point to the Telegraph that like the top 10 golfers of the European Tour now get an automatic membership of the PGA Tour. So it is seen very much as a little brother now. Yeah. And that's the way it is. And I think that maybe those uh, new tournament schedule, maybe into the future they realise that Europe is an untapped market and they make more money for um, American golf. I don't know how but it's going to The Scottish Open is now part of the PGA Tour. Yeah. Xander like, Schauffler won that last year. You know. Uh, but we see Rory, Shane and Seamus Power are all playing in North Carolina today. Yeah. Um, I've got three tips for that, by the way. I didn't have time because I'm just back today to do the podcast. But uh, for the Wells Fargo Championship, Cameron Young, for each way, 20 to 1. He's knocking down the door of a victory. And I also have Ricky Fowler, the comeback kid, 33 to 1 for three each way. And Patrick Rogers at 80 to 1 for three each way, 20 euro virtually. So if one of these win, this is actually officially. This is not an unofficial event for virtual insanity. This is an official event. Might not be a podcast, but it's an official event. It'll count towards the losses when they lose. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hopefully they're going to win. Did you enjoy watching Tottenham while I was away? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> the Tottenham. What do you say about Tottenham? Yes. The fact that Spursy has become a describing word. Well, but the, when you become the object of ridicule, it's, it's a terrible place to be as any kind of sporting organisation or a- entity. Um, that's, that's how bad it's got. Who do you want to be the manager? I don't really care who the manager is. I think the issue is at the board. And we're looking at a 12th manager under the current chairperson. And I don't know if there's ever, ever going to be an accountability towards Daniel Levy or the board for their decision making, especially since they sacked Pochettino. It is funny how it's Daniel Levy and not Joe Lewis who gets the opprobrium, though, right? Like, it, it's not, um, it was never, uh, so it was a bit Edward Word, a bit, but it was really the Glazers. 
and it was I don't even really I don't remember the chief executive at the moment at Liverpool is it was always Fenway who were the ones who were yes is it just because Levy shows up to the games and like I, I, shows I th- up for work I, I think that Levy is very much uh, the decision maker and the kingmaker there and he's allowed to do that whereas with the Glazers I think Joe Glazer is heavily involved in the um, decision making and I think Todd Bowley or Bailey whatever you want to call him is heavily involved in decision making at Chelsea um, I think Joe Lewis is a lot more detached as an owner therefore and because he lives in the Caribbean therefore I don't think he gets the level of scrutiny that he should as the ultimate person who yeah, decides I think he gets a bit of a free pass and yes. um, and ultimately you know we'll, we'll see if they there was definitely rumours that the club was um, interested in further investment I, maybe they were just uh, sending out those uh, smoke signals yeah. weather balloons to, yes. to check the weather and not to spy mm-hmm. um, look Daniel Levy's a great business person. Like, Tottenham was worth twenty million uh, in two thousand one, and when they took it over, it's worth two billion now. The stadium is amazing. Yeah. The, 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 but the, ultimately, it's it's all about the product. Is football? I do think that if they got the manager right, like we, we were talking yeah. about this, I um, think the recruitment is. I think the recruitment is recruitment. I think is, is is just as important as the manager at any club. It's it's true, but a good manager will have some influence over that. So um, they chose Nuno, yes, over Ten Hag. Yes, right. They were they were competitors at the same time, and they got rid of Mourinho and they replaced him with Nuno. Is that right? Was there somebody in between? No, no, only caretaker Ryan Mason, caretaker. Yeah. And Nuno was basically. Uh, we, we had this conversation, I think, either with Colm or with Phil recently on the um, football kickoff. It was like you don't like what uh, Mourinho is doing, and then you replace him with a mini me who's not actually as good as him. That didn't make any sense. So if they got the recruitment of the manager right, you can see the impact that somebody like Ten Hag has, where there's a credibility around the decision-making and there's a style of play that everybody knows what they're supposed to do and there's a responsibility that... Um, so, I, I, look, the Paratici thing definitely speaks to a club not being particularly well-run. Well, they've got Scott Munnan now from Australia. Uh, there's just there's too much of a focus on the continental structure. They had this with Santini and Arneson back in the mid-2000s. They actually took an old-style manager like Harry Redknapp to come in and sort Spurs out for the first time. And then Pochettino pretty much had all control. But I just do think that the chairperson, if you watch the All or Nothing documentary, he's a huge figure there. He's a huge presence. And I think his presence, there's a friction between his presence and his ideas and the manager football side. I think he needs to step back, run the business as brilliantly as he has, but you've got to let the football people do the football thing. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, uh, what about this free-to-air stuff? Have you got views on this on, on the GAA? Um, I think it's really interesting that nobody on the RTE panel has complained about it. Now that it's, I saw Shane McGrath writing about the buffering there on the on the website yesterday. They like to, you know, just like to see a smoother service from the streaming service. On Diego, yes, I, I'm. I definitely feel like that it's a brand new thing and it's the right step for the organisation to make for the GEA to make. I just think it's really interesting how there was a campaign against Sky that was uh, happily endorsed by the, uh, um, you know, the main. Live broadcast was always given out about it, and uh, now that's ceased. Now that RTE are shareholders in the the new one, it's like, oh, all right. Now nobody cares about it. That's interesting, isn't it? Mm. Or maybe nobody's allowed to talk about it, even if they do care about it. Even how punditry is developed as well. This is a conversation they came up with Sunes last night. They played a clip of him and Giles and Dunphy going at it, talking about Arsenal years ago, and how you just don't see that anymore. And you certainly don't see it in Sky. And, and Sunes's point was that Sky have reporters out of training grounds. In trying to interview players and managers every week, so you can't exactly go the well. The access the last night break. the city had for like Hallam coming down, yeah. gave him the microphone. Away you go. It's brilliant, isn't it? 
Uh, it's great, but it does lead to a closeness that uh, sometimes can be a negative. Quite pally. And, like, I'd love to this. Like, I think Jay Grow is a great idea, and I went on the radio on a few weeks ago when you talked before I left, and I just said, it's a great idea, right? I'm not here to bash it in any way. I'd love to see the Connick football final and the Munster football final on Diego this weekend because there's no jeopardy whatsoever to those games. The games with the jeopardy are Dublin-Wexford and Cork-Tip. They're the games that should be on TV because they're the games with the jeopardy, not the other two games when we have uh, those teams all in the Sam Maguire Cup. So that's just my... Well, I think that's just the provincial. Then you're really just saying the provincials don't matter. Well, the provincials should be there anyway. Well, then, then nobody's going to subscribe. What if, what? I, 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 I subscribed last week in the middle of the, uh, the Limerick-Clare uh, game because I was like gotta see this yeah exactly what so, if, and that's that's the whole point that's like it's good strategy they're going to take uh, a short period of pain where everybody complains about it people will migrate over they'll have it on it'll be seamless for them once it's on they'll improve the uh, they'll, they'll uh, do a better deal with Amazon Web Service to make the streaming better or whoever it is that's doing it in the background and away we go like what, what if what if Clare beat Kerry in the Munster final what if Sligo beat Galway in the Connacht final they're unlikely results but they would be famous results and then you turn around in 20 years and go do you remember that game wasn't on TV What's remember when Sligo won the Connacht final against nobody's watching TV finals? anymore you don't, you don't watch TV I want to watch sport and TV but you don't watch TV like do, most people most people aren't watching TV anymore they're watching streaming services like that's how the world has gone and for the GA not to have a version of this everybody's like oh you're a, you're a real backwards organisation you have to, I, like, well, I'm not against GA I think, but I think these games need to be terrestrial they don't which games like well, the, all the, the provincial games finals, you decide every like, single provincial final needs to be terrestrial why though like tradition I think the games let's show the let's show the interprovincial let's show the railway cup like Tradition, blah blah blah. No, but it, this could be a massive weekend for Sligo or for Clare. But it's those games are on TV. They are. They are. And, on and, and uh, that's my point. They should be. I feel. You know, Jeopardy or not, I guess there are bigger games in, in the hurling this weekend that that have Jeopardy. But I still think provincial finals. I think Diego needs to be able to put the best games that they can behind the paywall. Otherwise, there's no point in them having the the. Um, the organisation in existence and we're all going to have to get used to the fact that there is a significant portion of games behind the paywall and it'll be increasing but what they'll also do is they'll start showing loads more stuff that nobody else would show maybe TG Carr would show um, but maybe it'll be a, a combination of extra games and that's where the value comes in and yeah. all the all the big games ultimately will be on hopefully BBC as well so it's proper competition for RT because we know without competition there's just a, a n- no innovation yeah, it just frustrates me that you're watching matches like league matches in the spring on TG Car, which does a great service, and then you're watching club games in the autumn that don't have the weight and the importance of Clare Limerick and Cork Tipperary, which I believe should be available to the people as much as possible. So is it your view then, John, that like, if a game reaches a certain threshold of interest that it should be free to air? Yes. Yeah. Well, Limerick Clare wasn't on TV last weekend. Derry Monaghan wasn't on TV. That's a big provincial semi-final. It wasn't even on the BBC. So like, there's a lot I don't of why that wasn't on the BBC. Was no. there a reason given for that? I don't know whether it was the snooker maybe being on clashing with. I doubt it because that was at five o'clock that match, uh, and the session in the snooker didn't start till seven. So I, I don't know what the reason was, but but right. certainly those games should be possibly. I agree with John there. Slower right says JD class act OTB's finest. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a presenter who spoke with absolute clarity. Don Juggan. Thank you very much. Gotta, gotta love Don Juggan says Conor Pratt. There was a lot of Don Juggan on holidays, was there? Well, do you not follow my Instagram? Uh, there's a bit of Don. There's a bit of Don. Um, that's what four euro pints does, and obviously responsibly, as I keep on saying. Uh, no, no, it's it's um, 
punch town's great, lads. It's, it's just, uh, <laughs> cigars and hats and the whole lot. Yeah, like I, like I don't smoke. I don't believe in smoking. I think it's a disgusting habit. But if your cigar is put right in front of you and you said, okay, well, here's a cigar. Uh, and it's a sunny day and you're off and there's horses running uh, around pressure. you and there's, there's people like Johnny Ward in the, in, around, the, around the place you've got you to you have a cigar and many hats and it's like Bill Clinton said I didn't inhale 8.55 this morning here OTBAM with Gillette Labs got the ultimate shaver your money back Neon Night Edition is available now plenty more Don Juggan and John Duggan coming your way on Saturday afternoon on Off the Ball on News Talk tonight Tommy Rooney Paddy Andrews and James O'Donoghue are in glorious Technicolor bringing the football pod to Clarny for a live road show at the Great Southern Hotel I think it's a sellout but there's always one or two people who don't show up that you can sneak in at the back if you obviously buy your ticket very special guest Mark O'Shea uh, the football pod is in partnership with AIB proud sponsors of the football hurling and camogie All-Ireland Club Championships check out the hashtag the toughest for more up next Cameron Hill previews Ulster Connacht first Fiona Hayes alongside Rory O'Connor and Will on Wednesday Night Rugby last night reflecting on Ireland's disastrous Six Nations campaign what people don't understand is I'm banging this drum for about six or seven years now and I'm, I'm constantly talking about what's on the inside and I just I just felt and, and Rory touched on it as well obviously there's outside stuff but I felt watching these players that they had a lot more in them than what I was seeing you know like you can talk about the outside stuff but they're playing the game and they want to look and analyse their own game and at times yeah things improved but but they'd be very disappointed I mean a, a national team needs to have a good line out if you're in camp that much um, you know like little things like that and and I think you know as as the tournament went on and you're right right at the end it was it was kind of it was frustrating because like I'll be honest with you every time bar England and France and I hate even saying that every game I firmly believe that Ireland had a chance of winning um, even after the Welsh defeat I felt they could have gone out and turned things around in Italy France and England are too far ahead but even the last game against Scotland and, and they were well in this game so they just showed they have the ability but it's it's spot on it's very frustrating with such and it's not the players fault either it's, it's, it's where we are it's trying to figure out you know are we exactly here can can these players we saw with Wales in particular can these players turn things around and and kind of make a big improvement in in the I, they're playing the WX3 now but like in that six nations period before the next one because what can't happen is that we fall further Fiona Hayes last night on Wednesday Night Rugby uh, Roy O'Connor actually has an interview with the uh, chief executive of the IRFU in the end of today worth a read um, putting to him all those points about the uh, IRFU and the growth of the women's game and he's making the point that it's going to take time so uh, you have to take Kevin Potts at his word and um, at the same time hold him to account and, and follow their path uh, it would be great for them to do a press conference to to put themselves forward to answer these questions um, as well particularly on the back of this interview now that we have some further information uh, but anyway we'll come back to that story no doubt we are turning to rugby Cameron Hill is with us to help her preview Ulster versus Connacht in the um, uh, URC quarterfinal <laughs> yes yeah. uh, good morning Jared. and oh Shane's here as well good morning Shane good morning Cameron yeah. we, we met last night myself and Cameron at the Mansion House that's ah. right yeah 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 we both went along uh, totally unbeknownst to each other yeah Cameron was row 3 I was row 5 so there's obviously a preference here alright yeah, good on Cameron you know, don't know how that happened yeah, absolutely. It's, Super flex. It's, it's the back-to-back crappy quiz wins all those years ago. Shane. I'm still dining off those, but uh, um, yeah, Connacht versus Ulster up in uh, Kingspan Stadium, Ravenhill in Belfast. It, Ulster versus Connacht, I should say. It, 
there at home, obviously. A uh, really big game could be Andy Friend's swan song, but looks like it's going to be a really, really interesting fixture. Connacht definitely, from their comments this week, are going in with a kind of nothing-to-lose attitude, um, everything to gain. Ulster are probably favourites for this one, but it should be a cracking game regardless. Sounds like a bit of unrest in the Ulster camp. That seems to be the, the suggestion. Stephen Ferris has certainly suggested as much. Rob Little not signing a new co- new contract um, when he's a player that you would think should be. Um, uh, there just seems to be little bits of discontent behind the scenes. Because it's funny, because Connacht are the, the form team probably in recent games, but Ulster are the team that have been there and done that all season. So it's kind of set up very, very nicely, this one. Yeah, yeah, that interesting, those comments from Stephen Ferris were very interesting, but he was making the point that it's only when Ulster aren't doing well that yeah. these start to surface. Um, so maybe maybe there could be a bit of discontent. He said that there's definitely a nervous energy around Belfast this weekend, that uh, Connacht are coming up. They they look like this is going to be their big performance of the year. And I felt in the last game against Glasgow, they they were quite hard done by. I think they could have gone on to win that game. And there was a refereeing decision that maybe I disagreed with towards the end, which um, ultimately proved crucial for the win for Glasgow. Um, but yeah, I don't know. There, there, all year there seems to have been seeds of discontent just starting to bloom in Ulster this year, and maybe we can profit from that. I almost feel like it's um, it's a style of play thing. A lot of people in Ulster don't like the style of play that's going on at the moment, which is it's just mad. This, they have scored 75 tries. They're only nine points off a Leinster team that are super dominant. So what are they complaining about? Quite a conservative style of play in some games from Ulster this season. It's very mall heavy. So yeah. they scored 16 tries off malls this year and their mall defence especially has been exceptional. I was really impressed when I watched them against I think Leinster. They just set up so well. It was brilliant to watch. But you know their back line hasn't been that inspiring this year. I think we've seen a lot of their players such as James Hume, Michael Lowry, Robert Balakun especially um, taper off after showing such promise last year that maybe it hasn't quite gone to plan. Um, so maybe that's the complaint is that it's not aesthetically as pleasing and it's really, you know, front-facing rugby. It's funny, Dan McFarlane made those comments after the, the defeat to Leinster where he was kind of pointing out the, the I guess the geography and the resources and, and, and not making excuses certainly for the result against Leinster but certainly pointing out Leinster's dominance and why it might be. After the games against Dragons in Edinburgh recently we didn't hear from Dan McFarlane before or after it's like he's gone quiet a little bit we've heard from him this week in advance of this one um, but I found it quite interesting that he was kind of keeping the head down I think Ulster probably decided right we're going to say as little as possible because this is the big one yeah yeah maybe just let Connacht talk themselves up a bit too much um, but Andy Friend has been very um, interesting this week in his comments as is um, Quaylen Blade who's been brilliant especially in the latter half of the season and he was talking um, during the week about how the other players have started to bring on their game which means he's able to come into it a bit more he scored 11 tries or something this year it's incredible really and he is with him and um, Jack Carty working in tandem they're kind of unstoppable when they really get into their flow they're fantastic and you've seen in first halves against certain teams they can. They look like they're putting them away very early doors. Now, unfortunately, Connacht have a tendency to let teams back into games. There was a game against Zebra a few weeks ago where you thought you were home and hosed and then Zebra really came back into that game and ultimately Connacht saw it out. But they do still have the capacity to the capacity to self-implode. It, it feels like a little bit of a powder keg at times. How do 
Ulster deal with Jack Cardy because Dan McFarlane has name-checked him and said we will have a plan for him. Mm. Curious to see what that plan looks like. Depends on their back three, to be honest. Like Jack Cardy has done a lot more kicking, um, especially in the latter half of the season, and it's a big part of Connacht's game now is to put them under pressure, and it's a good bit of kicking against Glasgow. Um, so maybe the back three working together, it, it, does, it depends, I think... Um, I think Balakoon is there. Mike Lowry will be there. Jacob Stockdale is back in a big way too. We haven't had the teams yet. Uh, we don't have the teams. I think no. today's today. We right. have the teams because it's tomorrow the kickoff. Right. Um, so it depends on who they start in the back line, but they w- will be looking to maybe pounce on Jack Cardi's kicks, who, which are good for the most part. But you know he's prone to the odd mm. um, slip up here and there. So we'll see. But um, I think you probably just have to get your defensive. Line set very quickly and watch all those offloads because Connacht are a big offloading team as well and love to keep the ball alive. What's the pathway to the final for these two teams? Bulls or Stormers for the winner, I think. Yes, which is not exactly the. But <laughs> if, if Ulster to win, they'll they'll, they'll have Bulls they'll or have Stormers in in Belfast. Mm. So at least there is that carrot in the end of the stick for Ulster. Yeah, but then that that old word that uh, McFarland used this week, momentum. I know you love the word, Jer, but but Connacht have, I think it's six one six the last seven URC games, mm. so they have the momentum. Yeah, especially after such a dreadful start to the season, winning or winning just one in the first five, and the first game of the season was that thirty-six ten defeat, a comprehensive defeat to Ulster. So there's probably a little bit of that on their mind. Obviously, you want to um, finish Andy Friend's tenure in style and um, do that for him and see how far they can go. Connacht might be a little bit distracted as well. I know Pete Wilkins will have one eye on how the Sharks do against Leinster because the Champions Cup qualification is still not completely certain for Connacht uh, last weekend Scarlets and Bennett and lost their semi-finals in the Challenge Cup which means 7th should be enough for Connacht but if the Sharks win the whole thing they don't qualify so they'll have one eye on that as well but it feels like this is going to be an all out there performance and sometimes I feel like it's a backhanded compliment where people say oh Connacht play like they've nothing to lose and they, they give it their all and it's you know well, less structured yeah. than usual yeah it needs to uh, like it's a really big opportunity for Connacht to turn over Ulster and at the same time uh, if McFarlane was to reach the final this is all coming from Rory Keane's piece today in the mail if he was to reach the final he'd be the first Ulster coach to reach two of these finals and um, like I don't I, it's very hard to know what to make of McFarlane's time at Ulster there was all those complaints about the travel at time and you compare and contrast that with Andy Farrell talking about Anytime there's disruption, we take this as an opportunity to just show how amazing we are. You're like, well, let's prefer this approach to that approach. And yet then the team have managed to turn around the quality of their performances in recent weeks. Um, I I think they're uh, crucially handicapped by the fact that they don't have a number 10 who is of the requisite standard to free the back line at the same time. I don't know if Hume's form is a reflection of how unhappy he was after not getting the opportunity with Ireland and then the injury that compounded that but looked like he was getting back to a little bit of form they have some strength and depth finally with Stockdale back it means that they do have something on the bench and so uh, it should be a rib war mm. also uh, Mac Hansen and Bundyaki back yeah yeah they were ill for the um, Glasgow game last time out so the Having them back is obviously a huge boost for uh, for Connacht, and I think it's going to be an interesting game in the forwards as well. Um, Ulster's, you know, Ulster launched so much off the mall, but Niall Murray, I think he's 
leading the way in the URC this year for line-out steals. So that could be a really, really interesting battlefield. It's going to be a cracking game. I think both games, both teams are going to go out there, give it their all, and act like it is a cup final. It kind of is, um, especially for Connacht season. But I'm really, really looking forward to it. All right, give me your prediction. I think, I think Connacht by four. I think they'll have enough, and I just feel. Jeez, what we in have Belfast, Cameron. This is a, this Belfast. is an Ulster team that beat Connacht thirty six ten in the opening day back in September. But they've come on so much, and. An, I don't know. I've kind of I've been a little bit disappointed by Mac Hansen this year for Connacht. I got to say, but maybe this is the game he decides. I'm going to do a Mac special, Big right. Mac. Cameron Hill, two-time winner, back-to-back winner of the uh, Crappy Thank Quiz. Thanks very so much. Six months ago, yeah. yeah. Seven minutes past nine this morning here on OTBAM live with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition is available now on the OTB Podcast Network. Wednesday night rugby. Uh, football Daily, which is your daily dose of football news from Phil Egan and a Connor Myler feature interview as well. He's a very, very interesting character, very smart fella, um, the Tyrone footballer. Uh, now, uh, Shifty Let says, I don't like Gibraltar. I was definitely treated differently when a couple of staff realised myself and the wife were from the Republic in 2002. It wasn't me being paranoid either, as the wife noticed it as well. Connell Foyne says, uh, same as Ger, I subscribed just to watch the hurling before the Limerick match. Best matches last weekend were Kildare Dublin and Limerick Clare, both only on GA Go. Uh, Slower Riot says, get Hannah a pint if he's hanging. Ah, I feel grand. 10 minutes, 15 minutes for him, and then he can go and hit the early house. Uh, Noel Kyle says, Liverpool are not good. An actual very stupid team at times. No idea how to control a game. Mm. I don't... I mean, their uh, plan is not to control games, or at least uh, in the pre-Tiago and post-Tiago world, their plan was not to try and control games. And the Tiago experiment, you've got to say, on balance, uh, nearly worked, but then it didn't. Mm. New midfield next season, they'll control more games. Who's it going to be? Trent? Like, is that it? Is Trent going to midfield? Is he going to be an official midfielder from the start of next season? Feels like it. Feels like it. It's the way forward. I think Liverpool will, be, will certainly improve on this season. Uh, Bob Dwyer made the um, controversial call last night, Jerry said, Arsenal will not get top four next season. Uh, so people in the comments, let Bob know what you think of that. Yeah, tipsy Spurs fans' predictions a year out. Uh, slower Ride says, Haaland is the scariest twenty. 20- two-year-old on the planet I think I could batter most 22-year-olds but I wouldn't dream of going toe-to-toe with Big Erling going to leave that one there mm. uh, after the break Graham Hunter you're listening to OTB AM 11 minutes past 9 I'm delighted to say Graham Hunter is with us this morning Graham good morning to you how are you um, really I just want to talk about Aston Villa and the new uh, Barcelona links but in the meantime some other stuff has happened which we, I suppose we have to talk about I'm at all Jeff I'm at all um, Leo Messi Saudi Arabia Barcelona love triangle um, how do you think this one plays out? Um, well listen the, the, the bones of the skeleton are, are pretty clear um, I wrote about three four weeks ago um, about the fact that this is all messy driven. Um, he phoned Xavi or, or WhatsApped him and said, there's no one to come back. Um, are you up for it? And will the club be up for it? And Xavi Im- immediately said, when I took over in November 2021, the training ground culture was slack. Um, when, if you come back, It'll be my rules, my club. I'm Chavi the coach now, not Chavi your former teammate. 
if you can't sign up for that and towing the line in terms of it isn't a Leo Messi run training ground then no Messi said fine no problem at all I understand yes thumbs up at which point Tavo passed it up to the board and um, they've been frantically trying to design a financial plan which won't simply satisfy Messi um, but which will be able to be given the thumbs up by La Liga because at the moment Barcelona are still in a it's a recurring mess because they need to meet financial fair play there are things they want to do like renewing the contracts of Sergio Roberto Araujo um, Gavi amongst others Dembele and in order to do that they need to be according to Javier Tebas about 200 million euros better off either by revenue generated or by sales than they are right now. So if you start with a negative 200 million, it's identical to when a club gets penalised for some sort of misdemeanour and they start the season 15 points down. How do you turn that around? So Chavi's task is to, is to sort of uh, quietly indicate which players that just won in the title because a, a victory at Espanyol a week this weekend will, will make Barcelona champions. He's just got to kind of put the the, the, the the red tick or the red cross against some of his players and say, yeah, you can sell this guy that's just made me champion in order to get even to the starting line, at which point they can they can make La Liga say yes to the return of Messi. They're obviously saying to La Liga, this is a benefit not just to us, there's a benefit to you know La Liga's marketability, television rights, um, its popularity, the fascination of will he won't he manage to hit levels when he comes back, all these types of things. Driving it is undoubtedly the idea that Messi wants to see whether he can be, still be competitive for the Argentinian national team by the time the Copa America is played, by the time the next World Cup is played. And you mentioned Saudi Arabia, where he went. He's got a massive contract to um, help promote that country. He's an ambassador for their tourism. It's his choice. It's money. If I were him, I would have turned down. But he hasn't turned it down. There's a big row. I don't know how closely he reported it, but Gautier had said that uh, this week the days that he went to Saudi Arabia were days off because they lost uh, to Lorient um, at the weekend so he won uh, that day off was cancelled Messi went well you can't cancel on me now I'm off anyway to Riyadh see you later um, it, it's it's a storm in a teacup because although he's been dropped and sanctioned and it's very public and there's been fans demonstrating it's some several weeks since Paris Saint-Germain understood that their efforts to renew him, which they were knee-deep in doing, were wasted, that he didn't want to stay. And therefore, it's a shame that his reputation is besmirched by a choice he's made to, to, to leave and go to Saudi Arabia with, with what the club is now saying, you know, without our permission. Yeah, okay, big deal. Playing in Saudi Arabia would be a vast second choice, vastly lucrative for him. His idea is that his family wants to come back to the house that they kept by the Mediterranean, about 20 minutes away from come now that he wants to play in Football Club Barcelona. In fairness, even two months after he left in tears because of the... the I, I think he'd been done in by a double dealing by the board, by Laporta. In Paris, two months later, he, he said, I, I want to go back one day. I want to help the club I love. Um, so whether they can pull it off, lads, is something that's in the realm of speculation. But it's happening because he wants to return. And that's, that's a giant step. Turns out footballers have egos, Graham. Um, I'm curious, news that will shock no one, but uh, what would this do to the Barcelona dressing room? Because Messi walks in, walks back in as the prodigal son, and, and all of a sudden, I'm sure some heads are going to be turned. 
Yeah, interesting points. And um, look, I, I don't know is, is the honest truth. I think on the positive side, um, nobody ever questions, has ever, in my knowledge, questioned Messi's work ethic. He wanted things done to his timetable, to his style. He and Suarez and Neymar, while he was there, were always last out to training. So the whole squad would be out on time and they'd traipse out, I mean, all of four, five, six minutes late. Many coaches wouldn't like that. Many coaches who had the three of them kind of let them away with it as Neymar went, Suarez and, and Messi dictated a little bit about um, when there were days off and they they didn't run it like this is our club, but they did challenge, for example, Kiki Setien came in here, an assistant who's now in charge of the Gerard Piquet's Andorra side, who was very much trying to shake things up, be aggressive and chippy in training and push them harder. They didn't go down well with Messi and Suarez, simply not because they didn't want to work hard, but because they were like, who are you? Never heard of you. You're Joe Nobody. It's a kind of version of Shosha Medals. Piquet, on the other hand, was so impressed by this kid that he made him coach of Andorra and they're shooting up the professional leagues in Spain. So when Messi comes back, there's no Neymar, there's no Suarez. Um, we don't yet know whether Busquets will be there. He's going to make an announcement sometime in the next six or seven days, we believe, about staying or leaving. He's out of contract. It will be a massive jump forward in the financial acrobatics they've got to perform if his salary suddenly disappeared. Frankly, honestly, everybody's speculating on he's leaving, he's staying. I don't know which he's going to do. I do think it's time. I do think it's the Xavi adores having Busquets there. Alba would then become one of the, the two players saying he's been there before, Ter Stegen. Neither of them will be playmates in the way that Suarez or Neymar were. And I, I say again, Messi is idiosyncratic. He went, you know, nose to nose with Luis Enrique in the season that they won the title over a, a decision not given in a, given in a bounce game. And Luis Enrique told me that, you know, from then on, he didn't referee bounce games in training. But he wouldn't step back from Messi. He was absolutely furious about a foul not given in training. And it, it literally went nose to nose. And by the time the next match was over, Messi missed a couple of days training with gastroenteritis. And it took Xavi's intervention to, to, to bring peace to that situation. So if you're saying he's going to outright bad influence, I, I think the answer is no. And given that he wants to train, that he wants to... I mean, for example, when I wrote this three weeks ago, I checked the stats. I think he'd played 69 times for Paris Saint-Germain. And between goals and goal assists, there had been 63 goal contributions in 69 matches for Paris Saint-Germain. Plus whatever he got, I mean, did he have seven goals and five assists in the World Cup in that same time? So he was performing at Benzema levels in terms of goal contribution. It's just that he was performing in a, in a Hollywood FC side where the coach changed every eight or nine months and, you know, shooting fish in a barrel in, in France wasn't good training for the jungle of the Champions League. If we were handicapping it, you'd say favourite. It would be that he comes back to Barcelona, but that that's a, a deal fraught with uh, financial gymnastics and that uh, maybe an, an unwanted but much closer likelihood than we might realise is an easy deal to go to Saudi Arabia where 
you know there's there's no difficulty with that he just he just goes the money gets pressed the the cash machine uh, gets filled up and away he goes you've just done an Unai Emery um, I genuinely wish I could have put it that articulately every comma every every full stop every word perfectly judged that's exactly the situation alright there we go you brought up Unai Emery I didn't bring it up I mean I might have implanted it earlier in the conversation but uh, how the hell are Villa getting the financial director or the football director of Barcelona this is not something that I ever envisioned happening at any point really it's like uh, what how is this happening yeah, let's let's say it's jigsaw parts that might fit together, but it's not specifically Villa coming in, tapping on the shoulder and saying, listen, um, you're the man, and then jumping ship that easily. Mateo Alemán was sensational at Valencia when Unai Emery was there, and he's a pretty impressive uh, man for his contact books, for how he makes deals happen. He's been pretty central in the way that Barcelona have been able to stabilise themselves and then, on very low budget, um, put themselves into a position of winning the title in There has been, for several months, uh, because it, it's a sort of tripartite agreement at the top of the club, the president, Juan Laporta, Jordi Cruyff, the football director, and Matteo Aleman, who's kind of like you would call him the general manager, but he is a deal maker. Do, do not look at him in any manner of assessment you might make now or if he joins Villa, which I think he will, um, other than to understand that he lives to make good deals. Now, there have been, um, I have to choose my words really, really carefully here, there have been points of disagreement between Laporta and Cruyff on one side and Matteo Aleman about exactly how these deals are done. And therefore, the, the idea that Matteo Alemán might not stay was relatively front and centre. That he would leave now, that he would leave before the summer market, where, remember, Matteo Alemán is probably the expert on how to get the books in order to meet financial fair play regulations from La Liga. Therefore, when you saw the announcement, it was like, ah, yeah, He'll leave at the end of the season, but he's committed to helping Barcelona through the summer transfer market, even if it's up to the last minute of the... So if he joins Aston Villa, you've got the prospect of him being rather like Campos, uh, the football director at Paris Saint-Germain, who's also director of football at Celta Vigo. Now that's a hell of a task. It might be that Celta Vigo and Paris Saint-Germain aren't outright competing for the identical players and the identical budgets in the market. Nonetheless, it's a man whose time will become increasingly vital towards the end of the market when you get things over the line and both clubs have got a call on his, his services. Now, that's the way things are beginning to shape up for Matteo Aleman. They can't, say Villa do persuade him, and I think they, they have, they, they, they can't now negate the, the contract, he's, the, the leaving contract he signed with Barcelona, the Finiquito, um, and say, right, you have to dump Barcelona. Barcelona will be saying, like, well, we've got first call on him and Villa might have a crucial meeting or a crucial phone call. It's it's a little bit unusual as a structure, but, but let me promise you, in terms of deal-making, and for example, the way in which Unai Emery wants to take Rosselso from Villarreal, amongst other deals, obviously, and where to place footballers too, if, if Villa get Matalaman, they're signing a gen. You, you, you're making a big step forward. Very exciting. It's like legitimately... 
Very exciting as a Villa fan. I know you're not supposed to be excited by like executives, but at the same time, unless the unless the football club is run properly, the team never performs. It's very very rare where a team suddenly uh, shoots or breaks off the shackles of mediocrity that surrounds us. And th- yeah. there's nothing. I seriously think that it's become such sharp infested waters to deal with international transfers. It's so convoluted about there's a player wholly owned by a club, which agent are you dealing with? Are there intermediaries as well as the agent? Is the agent now being paid the kind of sum used to be able to buy quite a handy footballer for? Yes. Will there almost always, almost always be competition for any footballer that Villa have set their their eyes on? The answer is yes. And can Villa yet blow other clubs out of the water if they're in a straight competition, for example, with Chelsea or Liverpool or Manchester City? The answer is well, probably can't. Therefore, what you need is acuity. What you need is somebody who can say to an agent, look, if, if there's a modicum of doubt about several thousand extra per week at that club or, uh, you know, there's a modicum of doubt over the other club might spend more money on your player. Trust us because I know what a coach is going to do with your footballer. I know your footballer will be better. He'll play more regularly. We can get the deal done quicker. We'll pay the installments differently. But tell the man is is beyond a wheeler and dealer. It's not that that I'm saying. What I'm saying is that there is a, a level of connection and trust and respect for him around the world game, particularly in Europe, I'd emphasise, that can just step a club a little bit ahead on deals that might be in the balance. Um, Graham, the, if we skip across the El Clasico divide, Jude Bellingham seems very close to, to join Real Madrid. Bit of a blow to the likes of Man City and, and uh, of course, Liverpool seemingly pulled out of the deal a little bit earlier. But um, this is a big, big move for Bellingham. And I guess, as we mentioned on the show earlier, he will remain away from the uh, the eyes of the English media. Yeah, it's I mean, I th- I, th- there is no question, and I, and I think and I hope that we've talked about Roman and Bellingham on your show before, and many months ago, because they've been entirely open about the desire to sign him and add him to 20-year-old Camavinga and 23-year-old Charmany and 24-year-old Barbardi and 22-year-old Vinicius and 22-year-old Rodrigo and 25-year-old Militao. Therefore, like the logic of trying to get this 19, nearly 20-year-old, I mean, I have to say brilliant footballer, a brilliant character. He's got an extremely good brain, extremely mature. He's, he's just a leader figure in the making. That logic is good. I am, I am a little bit surprised. I, I knew, I've known for months, I've been talking about the fact that Bellingham and Guardiola were Manchester City's two highest priorities. And these days, particularly for an English club, an English leader club, trying to sign an Eng- a young English footballer, you'd have thought City was the winning bet there. What I'll tell you is that it, I don't think any of it has been made up about how close Madrid are. I don't believe it's made up that the terms with Bellingham's family and, and his, his, father, his father is involved and he gets the highest reputation possible. I think the terms are agreed. There are, the terms between Real Madrid and Borussia Dortmund are not agreed. One of the football papers here this morning, Marca, has gone heavily on, you know, deal done, deal agreed. Um, Diario As, uh, which was the one that first touted the idea that Bellingham would choose Madrid over City, 
have gone into reverse. They've gone clearly on a briefing from Real Madrid. Do not say it's done. We fear that Dortmund have pushed this news out so that City are forced into bidding more. Um, Batska, who's the, the equivalent of Matteo Alemana at Dortmund, is shrewd. And, and Madrid genuinely think that this splurge of publicity has been brought out because Bellingham is, is being allowed to, to treat with other clubs, not because he's out of contract, that goes to 2025, but because Dortmund know he wants to leave and they know they're going to get a massive sum. So Dortmund and knowing that things were close in personal terms with Madrid, what Diario As is saying is this is out there with Dortmund's full blessing so that City get a, a, a punch in the ribs and, and come in and, and try and outbid Real Madrid. So I don't believe that City will abandon this deal quickly because they very, very much wanted him. And you can understand why. If you think about Ukai Gundo and probably leaving, probably, um, something out of contract, and a degree of renovation and youth needed in the midfield, not so just a, a hunger of a new man in, a new quality man in, competing for places to something Guardiola believes in. This would be a, a, a setback for City. If, if it does happen when it comes to Romadin, as somebody who works over here, I would be thrilled. One last question for you. Matt Hardy got a few minutes last night for Atletico Madrid as they uh, moved ahead of Real in the table. He hasn't really registered that much just yet in terms of um, game time from that perspective. Is there any prospect of him still being a footballer who plays in Spain next season, do you think? Well, yeah, they moved ahead of Madrid um, and there will be repercussions for that. Florentino Perez, the president of Madrid, will be extremely unhappy. If if memory serves, I think Matt had maybe had six or seven minutes before. It's It's been an underwhelming opportunity for him and that's partly because Initially, he was competing against outright clear-cut favourites in that position. And then when they went to... They, they, they played when Renildo got injured, who's been, who was sensational. They went to a formation whereby Carrasco was guaranteed being a left back. And um, they played... Normally, it looks like five when they're defending, but it's a four um, whenever they've got the ball. And if I'm honest... It's about conversion therapy. It, there is nothing but good words coming out of the club about Matt and his presence there. But he's been competing against players who are absolutely set in their position. There haven't been the, there hasn't been the need to rotate. There haven't been enough injuries in his position to, to give him the open door. I've been surprised. I, I've been surprised about how little opportunity he's had. But it, it's a damnation that they've been. They, they are unrecognisable from the pre World Cup. They are after certainly over the last six or seven weeks, Spain's most attractive side. Wow! And it shows to me only what you and watching as much European football as I do, they're not far off. They're certainly top three, four entertaining sides in Europe. They've utterly changed their mentality. And frankly, had they been playing the way that they've been playing pre World Cup, I think Matt would have had much more game time. He's liked. He's definitely liked. Whether he stays next season or not, they have financial fair play problems to sort out. They lost huge amounts of money because they didn't play in Europe after Christmas. I hope he does. I hope he gets much more chance to show what he's made of. At the moment, the circumstances in in the most crazy way have really gone against him, Joe. Graham, before we let you go, a quote for you. I'm 68, but there's nobody ahead of me in football terms. Not Pep, not Klopp, not Arteta. Your thoughts on the, the return of Big Sam Allardyce? I wish we had time for me to sing the entire theme tune to the Muppet Show. <laughs> um, we have time. It, 
funny. It's funny how you can get away with tosh like that, having had sides relegated, having been caught with a pint of wine, flipping about sums about your charges. England, matter. what was his his long and glorious reign at England? Was it was it one match? One match, one win. Uh, honestly, the, the the one word. No, that's not true. One word that came to my mind that I can use on your show when I watched him looking old and tired and wheezy and saying, there's nobody, nobody. I thought, yeah, mop it. Graham, great stuff. Thanks a million. Pleasure. Uh, great stuff from Graham Hunter there in uh, Barcelona for us this morning on tomorrow's show Adrian and Shane with Rog football reaction Alan Quinlan fire pit Ronan McNamee and darkness into light and plenty more besides right now John Maughan and Neil Ewing with Will last night ahead of Sunday's Connacht and Munster football finals have a tremendous Thursday OCB AM with Gillette Labs get the ultimate shave or your money back Neon Night Edition available now